You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 403. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 7th of December, 2019. In today's episode, Chinese surgeons use straws to drain a man's bladder during a mid-flight medical emergency. And the FAA may fine Lufthansa $6.4 million for operating unauthorized flights. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 403 is ready for pushback. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about news in aviation, duh, and also cover your wonderful feedback. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside home in the Carolinas, a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is good to see you guys again. Sorry for missing out on last week, but good to be back. Looking forward to a great show. Yeah, we missed you. I'm glad that you could make it this week. you guys, too. All right. And also, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, hi, Jeff. It's come round again, isn't it? It has. It never seems to finish. Every week, we're on again. Brilliant. Looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really good one. Christmas, yeah, that's for sure. I'm hoping so. And I'm looking desperately for something, because when you said going round and round again, I thought about a toilet. Oh, well. I'll put the sound effect in later. (laughs) And also, joining us from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, Barbecue Master motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, everybody, great to be back on another fantastic episode of the APNG. Yes, glad to see you, good to see you, all that, and let's get on with the news. Stand by for news. On a flight from southern China to New York about a week and a half ago, I think, uh, two Chinese surgeons rigged straws, a syringe needle, and tubing from an oxygen mask together with tape to perform a life-saving emergency procedure. 
the surgeons uh, Zhang Hong uh, from the first affiliated hospital of, is that uh, Henan University? Yeah, there's just too many Chinese looking words for me to pronounce here. So anyway, um, he was uh, from an affiliated po- uh, hospital of some university in China. <laughs> and another uh, doctor can't figure out where he is from. Do you all see that? Doesn't say, does it? I see, oh, so anyway. Zhang Hong and Zhao Jing, Zhang Jing. Okay, yeah, that's it. Yeah, cool And I think the other one was from Haiman, uh, Haiman, Haiman. Haiman. Wow. Haiman. Our apologies to everyone in China for People's just hospital. not doing such a great Hainan. job. Haiman. 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 Ah, Okay. I knew I should have looked through this before we started the show. Anyway, uh, these two doctors were on board this flight, and uh, they responded to a call for medical assistance about 10 hours into the flight. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) How long was the flight? 10 hours into the flight, they responded to this. An elderly man was sweating, had a swollen belly, and had previously been diagnosed with an enlarged prostate. And uh, the man was already showing signs of shock. And they estimated that there was about a liter of urine trapped in his bladder. Ooh. That can be very serious, I guess. Uh, Steph, our doctor, will probably tell us maybe a little bit about how that can be a dangerous thing. Or maybe not. Um, oh, right now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the let me keep going first. then. Yeah, yeah I should finish the article and then I will. Yes, ma'am. Um, if we had not dealt with the situation in time, the patient's life would have been at risk, Zhang was quoted as saying. They decided to try to puncture the bladder to release the urine using a device cobbled together from materials at hand, including straws from milk boxes. The flight attendants put blankets on the floor at the back of the aircraft and had the patient lie on his side for the procedure. The surgeons inserted the needle to release the urine, but it was not big enough to ease the pressure on its own. Uh, one of the doctors then siphoned off the urine himself, drawing out most of the fluid over the next half an hour or so. He said that this was the best way that they had to control the flow. It was an emergency situation, and I couldn't figure out any other way, he was quoted. Uh, When I saw that the man could hardly bear the pain anymore, my only thought was how to get the urine out of his bladder. After the treatment, the doctors told the man to lie down for another half an hour to recover and check in with a physician after landing. Yeah, so this can be um, really serious, and I'm so fortunate that on this really long flight from China, I forget exactly where they were going, to New York, which is why they were 10 hours into the flight when this occurred, there were actually several surgeons on board because, um, to be perfectly honest, this is not something that I would have necessarily have had the capacity to to deal with as a non-surgeon and, um, you know, not uh, just not having all... I, not being able to use all those tools at my, my disposal. So that's very fortunate for this gentleman. But um, absolutely, this is a serious condition. Um, acute urinary retention, whatever the cause, there's different uh, reasons that it can happen, but uh, they can certainly present with the symptoms that this this gentleman had. So sweating, signs of shock, chest pain, anxiety, it can elevate your blood pressure. Um, if it's not dealt with quickly, if you have a lot of retention, it can lead to uh, bladder damage, chronic kidney failure, or lead to kidney failure. Um, so definitely good that these, these surgeons were on board and were able to devise a method to alleviate that acute pressure in his bladder. So kind of amazing. They were able to do that very, uh, MacGyver like situation on their part, but yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm li- curious, Steph, was it yeah. a, a catheter they made? Uh, n- I don't think so. I think what they actually did was they, 
they put punctured the bladder. Directly in they the put a syringe directly into the Whoa. bladder through the lower abdominal wall and then used the straws to, to siphon that out. I don't think they did it as a catheter. So uh, to my mm. knowledge, there are not catheters available in the medical uh, equipment. I'm not oh, sure that there are in ours. There um, are or not? Yeah, oh yeah, we have all sorts of things. Mm. We have the chest drains and all sorts. Huh. Yeah. Liz was asking if this was a cathed Pacific flight. No, it was actually yeah. China Southern, I believe. Yeah, I think what they, uh, I mean, the way I'm reading this, and, and who knows, because this is a, a news article and doesn't have all the details probably directly from the surgeons themselves, but they put the needle in through the the bladder wall to release the the urine in the bladder, and then they actually had to siphon through that, I think, to get the... <laughs> so I'm getting into this. Was the guy well, she's sucking uh, on the tube to probably. get the urine? That's probably. what I kind of gathered that's from. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I've done that in my car, and I can never do it without getting a mouthful of petrol. So mm -hmm. what was he, what was going to happen to him, I wonder? Well, just use your imagination. Of <laughs> I, I just. I, I haven't got one. You have to tell me. Are you okay, Dana? Um, yeah, I'm getting really <laughs> nauseous right about now. <laughs> I'm thinking about Nick sucking something up. Getting some petrol oh, in his car, <laughs> and then this guy, you know. Well, I'm glad he did that's specify why it was the petrol. Field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, it was petrol. Stuff that, that oh, certainly. Where is he going with this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, outside of my current area of expertise, but I just pulled up a um a picture online of a CT scan of urinary retention and, and a very full bladder, and you can see very easily how you could just go through the lower abdominal wall to be right into the the bladder there. So, oh yeah, everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive, actually. So, yeah, but anyway, good outcome, it sounds like. Yeah, a happy story um, with a, uh, a medical procedure. And you know what we should do? We should probably jump to our other medically related. Oh, we have another one? Procedure, yeah, sort of. <laughs> okay. uh, item E. And uh, let me see if I can find the. Ah, yes. <laughs> Okay, uh, so we have the story, sort of medically related. A woman went to extreme lengths to get a better seat on a flight from Pensacola to Miami and caused the plane to return to the airport within an hour after takeoff, police said. Shortly after takeoff, a passenger on an American Eagle flight, an envoy flight, claimed she was in need of medical assistance, according to a statement from American Airlines, the U.S. carrier's parent company. The woman who has not been identified, complained to airline employees and asked for a bigger seat, the Pensacola Police Department said. When she was told that more spacious accommodations weren't available, she became ill, Pensacola Police Department Public Information Officer Mike Wood told CNN. The pilot turned the plane around after the passenger claimed she was sick. Once they got back to the airport, employees realized the woman wasn't sick at all. She was faking it. Employees called the police after the woman refused to get off the plane. The woman was taken into custody and because of her comments to officials was transported to a mental health facility under the Baker Act, which is a Florida law that allows authorities to detain individuals believed to pose a threat to themselves or others. Yeah, that's happened to me a few times on layover in uh, Florida. Anyway, uh, criminal charges have not been filed against the passenger, but charges could still be filed. So. I guess they're trying to determine whether or not she was really mentally ill or just trying to, you know, do whatever she could to get a better, bigger seat. Cuckoo. Yep. Sounds pretty cuckoo to me. Um, 
I think she had even asked for the bigger seat before they even left um, the uh, left the ground. So, well, at least she hmm. asked. Most passengers who do this just upgrade themselves. Oh, that's true. And then have to be kicked like, out of. No, it. no, this is my seat here. I promise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I seem to have last lost my boarding pass. And that little <laughs> electronic <laughs> device that you have that says that I'm not supposed to be in that seat is wrong. <laughs> Somebody hacked Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yes. As a as a regional flight, I'm guessing that this uh, the the larger seats weren't that much larger. I wouldn't think so. I think it's a an E one seventy or something like that. Or eight, yeah, eight. I mean they're they're slightly bigger, but it's not like going to a uh, you know lie flat business class. Well, seat not or what something. you're used to, Steph. Of course, none <laughs> of us are used to those kind of seats. <laughs> oh, I beg to differ, Captain Jeff. Yes, Captain Dana. What do you differ? with me about well you know we flew london to boston somebody was sitting in business class very comfortable oh, and that I was, was nice yes thank you yes yes i was for reminding me the fat guy <laughs> stuck on the back oh my heart pumps custard <laughs> actually that kind of backfired on me that whole thing because it took me a very very long time to finally get home to atlanta and i had to go through raleigh durham thank you dana for that suggestion after I made it into Boston, Boston, Raleigh, Durham, Atlanta. That was in hindsight. I wish I'd just taken my little seat in the back and flown nonstop. But yeah, well, it was very risky whether you're going to get on that flight or not. Yeah. It's very so. risky when I get in on an airplane at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, 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 yes. Yes. We I, acknowledge I, that. I was going to say something, but I'm not. Okay. Good. Uh, let's be back up to B. Uh, press release faa proposes a 6.4 million dollar civil penalty against deutsche lufthansa airlines um, the u.s department of transportation's faa proposed a six point let's see six million four hundred and twenty eight thousand dollar penalty against them because they are uh, for allegedly conducting almost 900 flights that were not in compliance with federal aviation regulations the FAA alleges Lufthansa operated the flights in, to, and out of San Diego International, Philadelphia International Airports, uh, both of those, when it knew it lacked FAA authorization to do so. Foreign airlines can only conduct scheduled flights into and out of airports that are listed in their FAA-issued operation specifications, and the FAA alleges neither airport was in Lufthansa's operation specs. So they uh, they operated about 900 flights, and uh, the FAA is not very happy about that. Interesting. Yeah. You uh, feel like that would be stopped before they could actually manage to do, I don't know. You would think that somebody in charge of compliance would have caught that? Have noticed, yeah, and said, well, you really actually yeah. can't come here today. I suspect compliance is a dusty little cupboard. Uh, in the corner of the office, the nastiest place, and they'll get ignored. And as a result, they forgot. <laughs> yeah, I think that you're right. I don't think that they did it on purpose, knowing mm -hmm. that they didn't mm -hmm. have the authorization. And it's probably just a, a, a you know, formality, really, to uh, right. get that authorization. Oh, absolutely. We uh, our, our little empire that um, gets overflight clearances uh, forgot one year, and I forget whether it was China or Russia or so, but it was somewhere pretty big. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, they turned around and sent one of our airplanes back. And when when we worked out what was happening, uh, we realized that they hadn't done it, and it took two weeks to get the 
clearances in place. In the meantime, we had to reroute all the aircraft and all the schedules got disrupted. I mean, the amount it cost the company just for a little bit of paper that should be a formality every year, it's ridiculous. Hmm. You know, Carlos, I mean, uh, Carlos, and Neville makes an excellent point. This from the organization that certified the 737 MAX. I, I When I read this, I was completely, yeah, the FAA, Jeff. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I, I'm not sure I understand. Well, it, it's amazing to me that after that, that they didn't catch this. It took 900 flights for the FAA to realize that an airline is operating illegally into our country. Oh. Well, I think they were just working out how much they could make. If we leave it another hundred flights, we'll have another million. <laughs> keep going, keep going. That little thing going, ching, 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 ching. Nobody tell them. Nobody tell them. They were. They thought, oh wait, maybe they're about to figure this out. Okay, let's go ahead and slap the fine on them now. I yeah. think this is probably a, a good example, like you said, though, of uh, just having so many different moving parts of people who are supposed to be doing certain jobs at certain times, and no one know who's knows who's talking to the the other group and. It just gets overlooked. Sounds like really Julie's back with the eggnog. Yay. <laughs> Tell her to No, she's just leaving. I need to oh, get her attention. Okay. Oh, you never did? Okay. Well, anyway. Well, actually, I can actually hear him a little bit. I can too. Just a tiny bit. I have it on mute too. I know. I know. But it doesn't mute it like to zero. It gets, it's close. But uh, when you yell like that, <laughs> we can hear you. <laughs> hey, that's not nice what you're yelling about me. Stop it. <laughs> anyway. Let's move on then, shall we, uh, to item C. Uh, British Airways Airbus A320 at Paphos. Paphos? Paphos. Paphos. On October 19, 2019, fumes in cockpit. Both pilots partially incapacitated. Uh, they were flying an A320-200 registration Golf Golf A, let's see, Alpha Tango Lima. That's uh, a good registration, don't you It think? is. ATL? I, I, mm-hmm. I see that, yeah. Mm. Performing flight 2676 from London Gatwick to Paphos, Cyprus, was descending through 8,000 feet to 6,000 feet towards Cyprus when the first officer noticed an unusual odor in the cockpit and queried the captain whether he had taken a shower. No, wait, that's not what he said. <laughs> whether he, he would also smell onion bajis? Bajis. Bajis? Onion bajis. Baji, what's it's, that? Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's onion rings. Uh, they're all mashed up in a ball and uh, fried in batter. It's an Indian dish. Very Ooh, nice. Sounds good. Anyway, yeah. so apparently awesome the blossom. first officer smelled that, and the captain indicated he did not. About thirty seconds later, the first officer felt his arms and legs were tingling, and he had the impression he was about to faint. He donned his oxygen mask and made sure oxygen was set to one hundred percent. He then turned to the captain, telling him he didn't feel good. I mean, he did, that he didn't feel good, but there was no response. The first officer then indicated he was incapacitated. Still no response from the captain. After a couple of seconds, the captain finally reacted, stating very slowly he didn't feel good, too, and donned his oxygen mask. Or mask. Both pilots verified the captain's oxygen was set to 100%. During that time, several calls by ATC to descend at 4,000 feet went unnoticed. The pilots recovered a bit, however, could not establish two-way communication between them with the oxygen masks on. They figured the captain could hear the first officer, but the first officer could not hear the captain. The captain was pilot flying and began to point to the checklist to be executed, which is uh, smoke, fire, fumes. 
then throughout the approach pointed to the relative levers to be operated for flaps and gear extension, while the first officer continued to communicate with ATC and read the checklists. The aircraft landed safely on Paphos's runway 29 and about 13 minutes after the onset of trouble, the crew opened the cockpit windows immediately after rollout before taxiing to the stand. Following shutdown at the stand, the captain went to the lavatory almost immediately while the first officer checked with the cabin whether there was uh, everything was okay. Uh, the cabin had not noticed anything untoward, however, and the flight attendant was shocked by the view of the first officer being completely pale. She stated that there was a strong smell of fuel from the cockpit when the cockpit door opened. The tingling, confusion, and difficulties to concentrate continued to uh, pass the landing despite the oxygen mask. Both pilots went to a hospital where they were diagnosed with very low blood oxygen saturation and fever. The doctors recommended that the flight crew stay in the hospital overnight for monitoring. However, the pilots preferred to go to the hotel and return to London the next day as passengers, refusing to fly on the occurrence aircraft. The occurrence aircraft remained on the ground for 27 hours, then returned to London Gatwick uh, as Flight 2675 and continued service. And that's all we know. Um, apparently, or it sounds like, perhaps there was some kind of a, a fuel vapor leak into the cockpit. I don't know. It's a strange one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuel or oil. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's Why would it be like just isolated, just isolated to, the cockpit? to the cockpit? Yeah. Well, well I'm, I don't know about the air conditioning uh, setup there, but uh, on the original A340s I flew, the cockpit got an independent uh, feed from the packs into the cockpit, uh, whereas everyone else in the cabin got recirculated air. Uh, so that was one possibility. If there is, if there was an oil leak and they had that design, uh, it's an A320, so I don't know well, if Al was around, we could ask him. Um, but uh, I don't know. That's just one thought. And, you know, being that I'm a, a fairly well-versed uh, inst- ah, sorry. That's okay. Do keep going. It's part of the ambiance. Oh, okay. Well, I was muting it back up, but being that I'm a former instructor, I have a, a pretty intimate knowledge of uh, how generally uh, the um, – air conditioning system works on an aircraft. And generally speaking, on most aircraft, uh, you're going to have a separate mixing chamber and or a source for the flight deck versus the cabin. I.e., for example, when I had uh, just my recent incident uh, going back, what, three weeks now, um, and I had that burning electrical smell in the flight deck, it was not sensed even just by the flight tents right behind me. So, you know, we're generally getting pretty fresh air up in the flight deck. So I can't speak to the 320, but I imagine it's probably a very similar scenario. Very good. I suppose you're right. So hopefully we'll find out exactly what happened in this case. I'm not sure if it's going to be investigated. I'm sure it will be by the uh, appropriate regulatory uh, organization. I, I tell you what it does highlight, though, is uh, how quickly this sort of thing can uh, can happen. How quickly you you get uh, you can be incapacitated if you get something obnoxious on the flight deck. Uh, you know, obnoxious captain, obnoxious uh, first <laughs> officer, or whatever. Something See, that obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. I, re- I resemble that remark. <laughs> Please. Something noxious on the flight deck, and uh, how you should go. Not sit there sniffing it, going, do you smell that? Do you smell that? Just at least one of you get straight on to oxygen. 
And if the other bloke wants to sniff it and see if his arms start tingling and he falls unconscious or whatever, that's you know, fair enough. At least one of you left to fly the airplane. But uh, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt. Get on oxygen and talk about it later. That is crazy how fast that happened, though, because it was you know 30 seconds in. The first officer was talking about feeling tingling and faint and mm-hmm. all of that. And Captain's like, no, I'm fine. By the time he got his oxygen mask on, Captain, not Captain responsive. Captain was like, out. Yeah. <laughs> he was not responding. Definitely yeah. quick. And probably- I'm a bit surprised the FO didn't take control. I mean, the fact that he couldn't speak to his captain uh, and the captain had to call for services by pointing doesn't seem very good to me. If uh, I'd have been tempted to give the bloke who uh, had full communications uh, control of the airplane, I don't know what you guys think. Well, I think it's uh, probably a little unclear as to what happened in that time frame anyway. I don't know that they had they would necessarily have the best recollection of exactly what happened during those few moments. So it may be that the first officer was the one flying while the captain was trying to um, uh, get sorted a little bit there. Um, Yeah, I suspect uh, there probably was more um, shared responsibility between the two of them for whoever was able to best deal with the situation in that moment at that time Mm. than is is actually documented in the the report. And I mean, I'm just thinking outside the box, Dr. Seth, and, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, all right, so if somebody's getting a little bit of oxygen deprivation, obviously causing some cognitive issues, as an older person, possibly the captain being a little older, would be more susceptible maybe than the younger first officer who might be in better shape and a little bit younger? It depends. There's a lot of variables there. You know, I've talked about that a lot before. So um, that might be the case, but not necessarily true. So a lot of it does have to do with... Um, how well your body is able to tolerate hypoxia. That's There's true. a lot of variables. Because we know people that uh, can can uh, drink quite a bit and not really seemingly be affected. Mm-hmm. And then other people, you know, they have uh, half a glass of wine and they're like on the floor. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's and it doesn't them. always, it doesn't always correspond with who you think might be affected in those ways. Right. Well, one of them might have been a smoker, in which case they're already at like 5,000 feet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that's all, uh, you know, you just mentioned it, Nick, that, that's something that's often forgot about when we talk about these things, is that the cabin elevation often is at five, six, seven thousand 7,000 feet. So the oxygen, the availability of oxygen at that altitude already is limited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to item D, and this one covers two separate crashes over the uh, U.S. Thanksgiving holiday time frame. Uh, The first one happened, and we didn't talk about it, uh, we could have last week, but uh, I wanted to see if we'd learn any more information about it. And this happened uh, somewhere very close to where Liz lives in the Toronto area. Uh, Five uh, people were killed. Wait a minute. No, seven people were killed in a small plane crash in Canada. Uh, They were, uh, five of the seven were members of a Houston area, Houston, Texas area family. A spokeswoman for the Ontario Chief Coroner's Office said the victims' names likely won't be released for several days. The identities of the deceased persons, well, we just said that. Uh, Let's see. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada said the U.S.-registered single-engine six-seat Piper PA-32 airplane crashed about 5 p.m. Wednesday in a wooded area of Kingston, Ontario, about 90 miles southwest of Ottawa on the uh, Ontario-New York border. The plane had taken off from Buttonville Municipal Airport in Markham and was on approach to Kingston's airport when officials say it took a steep dive into the wooded area. Kingston Police Constable Ash G. 
said the area was under a wind advisory at the time, and while winds may not have been as bad as predicted, it was certainly blustery. The aircraft did not have a flight data recorder, nor was it required to have one, according to a lead investigator for the TSB. Uh, They uh, released new images of the wreckage on Friday, showing the mangled aircraft being, being taken to a facility in Richmond Hill for further analysis. Richmond Hill, isn't that where... um, one of our APG listeners up there, Christian Bale, I think, lives in that area. Pretty sure. Mm, probably. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see. Uh, somebody told the <laughs> City News the man piloting the plane was his close friend, Atabek Ablokulov, and that Ablokulov's wife and three kids, aged 16, 10, and 6, were also on the plane, along with his brother-in-law and wife. Oh, Lord. Um, so they were all family or related, I guess. Um, told, let's see, a Toronto college instructor told local news outlets that the Ablokgolovs had planned to stop in Kingston to visit his family and friends before proceeding to Quebec City for a vacation. We were waiting for their call when they landed. We waited a long time. So I searched on Google and this showed up, referring to the crash. Uh, let's see, there's some other information here, I think. I'm kind of scanning down a little bit. Um, Was weather a factor? The cause of the crash is still under investigation. However, local residents and police noted that there was bad weather in the area at the time. Um, Windy conditions, blustery. Uh, At some point, I think I read that uh, the ceiling was kind of uh, on the low side as well. Um, Residents in the area also noted that there was heavy rain and strong winds around the time of the crash. So it looks like um, winds, rain, low ceilings might have something to do with it as well. Anyway, the thing that kind of, nope, uh, Dana is shaking his head. I, I see in my peripheral vision. Um, this is a PA, what, 32, they said? It's or, a Piper 6. Okay, a Piper 6. And they said seven people were on board. Uh, is that is that legal? Is that unusual? Is that okay? Uh, I, <clears throat> no, it's, a, it's, it's certified for six people. Um, And that's what should have been on unless the seventh person happened to be a lap child. I think there may be an exception there, just like with us. Mm -hmm. Um, But that would be the only exception I could think of. This really sounds like a classic scenario of picking up ice, no ice way of, of, uh, you know, removing the ice from the aircraft. Mm -hmm. And, of course, being up in Canada, it doesn't take very long to get up into the ice once you're in the the clouds and uh, probably picking up ice. And and from the way it sounds that the aircraft came down, uh, more than likely it was in a complete stall because the ice had accumulated and causing loss of airflow across the aircraft. And the aircraft was obviously very heavily loaded and possibly could have been very close to the uh, uh, limits on the uh, uh, um, CG envelope. So mm-hmm. I, I, that would be my just reading this and seeing what is being said here. I would find that probably to be the case. I, I, when I was reading about it, too, I, I didn't think about the ice angle of it, but uh, the just the fact maybe they got a little bit too slow and then stalled and crashed. I mean, it seems like a a very typical scenario. Yeah, I mean, when they said there were uh, seven people, I assume that at least two of them might have been very small children. But here we see that it's nope. uh, 16, 10 and ad- six or something. Four yeah. adults and then 16, 10 and six. So yeah. those are not very small children. 
not as small as I was thinking, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say anything here that they were on approach. But so if Mm -hmm. you go from a, you know, if you're in a cruise scenario with people on the aircraft, obviously you're not maneuvering the aircraft. You're just in a cruise. They were on approach. I did Uh, read that. Yeah, they were going to stop in Kingston, which was. Oh, okay. They said they were on approach Mm -hmm. to Kingston's Mm -hmm. airport. Were they on final approach, though? I mean, mm, well, no it doesn't idea. say yeah. what. I don't think yeah. so. I don't think they were lined up on final. I think they were uh, maneuvering on approach. Um, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if, if you they know, of course icing. you can stall. Yeah, I, you know, it's Kingston. It's cold. It's raining, which means more than likely there's ice accumulation in the clouds. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Or, you know, again, it could have been a combination of or no ice and that the, you know, once you slowed the aircraft down, that the uh, the uh, CG was way out and caused yeah. the aircraft to stall as well. So that's that's mm-hmm. probably the two likely causes. Yeah, I think guess. the icing angle and uh, along with the stall, obviously, because of the icing um, probably is a very likely scenario in this case. Or, you know, with the CG, I mean, we don't know what the CG mm-hmm. is, but once you slow the aircraft down, obviously, yeah. if you have a, a, a unstable CG, you're unable to control the aircraft and you can lose control, especially in IMC. It would be much, much more difficult to recover the aircraft. So those are the two plausible, I think, on this one. Well, we have a lot of listeners in Canada that I'm sure will be watching this closely. And if they do actually come out with a preliminary or final report sometime in the future, which they will. Um, perhaps they can alert us to it and then we can kind of come back to this and, and, uh, see what really happened. And you know, we know that these aircraft aren't really big enough to have full flight data recorders, but geez, we, most of us have dash cams on our cars nowadays. Just having a, uh, an inexpensive video recorder with uh, a card that's uh, in a little protective box mounted in the ceiling. Uh, looking down on the instrument panel and recording what's being said in the in the cockpit area would be so valuable in trying to work out what happens in these kind of uh, crashes. It would cost money. Well, yeah, but most GA most GA people, especially in flying older aircraft, probably would not invest that type of money. I, I understand the resistance, but right. uh, you know, if people can afford to put one in their car because it makes their insurance cheaper, then uh, perhaps the aviation industry should follow that lead. Well, I mean, in, in my car, my truck, my new truck, I've got a crash detector. So it actually is almost like a uh, uh, flight data recorder for my car. So if I have an accident, they can pull the data. So, yeah, I agree with you, Nick. Absolutely. I'm just saying the reason why more than likely is, you know, older aircraft trying to get a modification. And, uh, you know, well, yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunate in the uh, aviation world uh, as well that uh, the same exact piece of equipment that you slap in your car and you put it on an airplane and then you charge 10 times what you'd pay on, you know, the thing sure. that you put in the oh, car. Oh, that's right. The, the mm-hmm. $100 hammer uh, trick. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, with this other uh, crash involves a uh, more high-performance airplane, a Pilatus PC-12. Um, and this was, let's see, nine members of an extended Idaho family died after a plane crashed in Chamberlain, South Dakota near the center of the state on Saturday. Among those killed were two children and the pilot. Um, Let's see, the family of 12 were returning home to Idaho Falls from a weekend hunting trip in South Dakota. Uh, Let's see, Jim and Kirk, we don't care that. I mean, we do, we care, but it's not really pertinent to uh, talking about the accident on our our show. Um, Three of the family members were seriously injured in the crash, so not all aboard were killed, but wow, nine 
people dying in this crash. And I'm trying to recall exactly at what phase of flight this occurred. Um, anybody else uh, have scanning real quick? Yeah, I, I don't believe the not Pilatus, a lot of information. Not a lot of information, but uh, I'm pretty sure that aircraft is not certified for 12 passengers. Uh, well, at the bottom, it says it's uh, maximum capacity, one pilot and 10 passengers. Uh, yeah. Here's another scenario where they had one more than was supposed to be on board. Well, this, and it's so, that, it's so tragic sounding to me, too. Just, you know, you take a look at what the capacity of these aircraft are. And, and you know, I'm not trying to jump to any conclusions about exactly what happened in either of these cases. But then you put multiple family members and potentially more or in this in both of these cases, one more than it's actually meant to hold of all of these family. And you have these tragic outcomes where you're losing multiple people in the same family. That's just terrible. It's, it's, it's poor pilot decision-making, period. Uh, this airplane is a fantastic airplane. I have never flown it. I know, know a couple of my friends that have. I actually have uh, time in a very old Pilatus um, uh, flying parachute jumpers. Not, not anything like this aircraft is now. Um, and it does have the ability for any ice. It was very bad weather from what I understand. What I read, I think it was departing. Um, it doesn't say it here. I think I read something that it was. It actually, it does. It says uh, crash shortly after takeoff. Yeah, oh, shortly okay. after takeoff. So I'm I'm willing to bet it's exactly what I was talking about. Probably overweight and probably the, the center of gravity was outside the envelope and the pilot lost control of the aircraft. Hmm. That's my guess. Could be. Could be. So, again, hopefully we'll find out more about this when the investigators have a chance to gather the information and come up with a, a probable cause. Sad, though. You know, this is the time of year Terrible. we get together uh, for, you know, these big family dinners and, and gatherings. And then to have so many of one family die in both of these cases, uh, very tragic. Really, adds it, you know, and I have to say this, it, it really is an example of when you have a professional pilot versus um, pilots who just going out and have their own, you know, own aircraft and take unnecessary risks that, that put themselves and their family members and other folks in, in harm's way. You know, we're, we're trained to a completely different standard, and it, it's, this, this is, this is it's sickening to me sickening well and i you know i was not sure what point exactly i was trying to make there with the, the both of these situations being large families trying to get from point a to point b um i can see where that can be uh even though flying is certainly expensive but if you have your own aircraft that you own and it's multiple members of your family you're trying to get from point a to point b the time savings probably does come out to be more economical than other forms of transportation um, just given the time and, and costs involved. But I think there are a lot of, uh, I would say, probably the vast, vast majority of private pilots out there and folks who are flying their own aircraft or flying friends and family are very conscientious of all of this. You know, weight and balance and center of gravity is one of the first things you're taught and it's it's harped upon and it's very important. I think everyone understands the seriousness of it. It's just a shame that there's people out there who perhaps don't take that quite as seriously, or perhaps they've done it so many times where it becomes a little bit of complacency. Well, it worked the time before. So, you know, what's one more person here and, and we can all get up there together and have a good, good holiday. And then you have this kind of tragic outcome. So um, just a good reminder for, for all the rest of us who are not professional pilots who do fly for our own personal enjoyment to never take those things um, 
those things should always be taken as seriously as they're taught to us in the first place. And, and you want to keep, you know, yourself safe. You want to keep your friends safe. You want to keep your family safe. You want to keep whoever's flying with you on that day safe people on the ground. Um, this is, this is really serious stuff. You hit it right on the head, Steph. Like Steph is, it is complacency. And what's even more bothersome to me is the technology that we have available today, like Flight and all these other programs that you can just plug in the information. It becomes readily apparent very quickly, uh, whether you are in balance, out of balance, whether you're overweight, underweight, you know, whether you're okay to fly that aircraft. And, you know, in both these cases, I think weather, weather is involved. So, um, you know, the, the get the iritis, I think, may have been a factor here. And, you know, you're right. I mean, there's complacency and, and you know, it's, I've done this a hundred times before, but it's just all it takes that one time. So be safe out there, fly the air, aircraft safe. And that's, you know, that's the, the biggest thing that we, we at the, in the, in the professional world uh, are very conscientious of is making the safe choice. Stay on the ground, make the right choice as far as uh, the weather goes and, you know, analyze and think about what you're putting on the aircraft because it can only carry so much. Very good. Can you guys hear the uh, little two-stroke motors in the background of my broadcast? No. No. It's somebody out there with leaf blowers or something just going really, just go, <laughs> going crazy out there. It's that, it's that time of year. <laughs> I don't think, great timing. My neighbor, my neighbor did it at <laughs> eight o'clock this morning. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got their party tonight. I think it was that neighbor. So. I know, but yeah. could have waited until nine. Nah, it's fine. Yeah. Got me out of bed. All right. But they're getting louder and louder, so hopefully you can't hear this. Hopefully they're I taking can. care of your leaves. That'd be nice. Uh, nice neighbors. They might be, actually. I don't think the uh, the folks that do our lawn uh, were here yesterday when they normally do their thing. Anyway, moving on. Again? Yeah, more bad boy activity. Uh, a man was restrained after trying to open a door on a British Airways aircraft in midair. This from TheGuardian.com. Um, in a statement, British Airways said it was impossible for an aircraft door to open in flight. I'm so glad they put that in the in the article here. And at the very uh, top, like the very yeah. first thing that you read. I'm impressed. Thank you, Guardian. The Guardian. Uh, a man suffering a panic attack tried to open the door of a British Airways flight to Saudi Arabia in midair, but was stopped. By fellow passengers, including the brother of the boxer, Dillian White. I don't know who that is. That must be somebody that's kind of popular, famous over there in the UK. Nick, have you ever heard? Or I, I guess you I have don't to. follow the boxing. Often. There you go. So, yeah, if you're one of those people that do, then you'll, I guess that's some fun information. Uh, the incident occurred on Monday night, about an hour before the BA flight 263 from Heathrow to Riyadh was due to land. Without warning, a clearly agitated man started to pull the lever on the door on the back of the plane while screaming, I want to get out, in broken English. Another passenger in uh, McNally quickly spotted what was happening and tried to intervene. Shortly afterwards, the six-foot-seven-inch Dean White, who was sitting in a nearby seat in an economy, was alerted to the, wow, that must have been uncomfortable. (laughs) Six-foot-seven. That's the the brother of the boxer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You know, that's a big man to be sitting in a, an economy seat. Yeah. Um, was alerted to the commotion and rushed down the aisle to assist, along with the other members of the flights or the fighters' entourage and an air steward. White was able to grab the man in a bear hug and say, I love you, man, and pull him away <laughs> from the door while repeatedly telling him, calm down, bruv. Huh? 
Brother. What does that mean? Bro. Brother. 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 Oh, okay. You, you guys would say bro. We bro. Yeah. Bro or bro. Calm bro. 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 Okay. Maybe the V is silent. Uh, at that point, half a dozen more air stewards, <laughs> one carrying. It's like brother. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny. Oh, okay. Um, you just yeah, let me know next time. I'll, I'll hold up a finger or something. <laughs> yeah. This is a joke. Funny. That's very funny. Good figure. Yeah, I know. I, I'm always having to explain my jokes. It's not a good thing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, at that point, a half a dozen more air stewards, one carrying handcuffs, rushed down the plane to help. Finally, after a few minutes of angry pointing and shouting, shouting from the passenger, he calmed down and was brought back to his seat. White was traveling to Saudi Arabia to support his brother who was fighting under the or on the undercard of the Andy Ruiz Jr. versus Anthony jo- Joshua heavyweight title fight that's, on Saturday that's night. today, isn't it? That fight? Mm-hmm. It was on the I news sh- this morning. I don't know. Today is Didn't Saturday. It. <laughs> it's probably happening right now because it's probably yeah. close to Saturday night in yeah. Saudi Arabia. Anyway, so yeah, they were uh, able to uh, suppress this gentleman. I use that term very loosely and get him to calm down. But it, it appears that uh, he suffered some sort of a panic attack and and wanted to get out. So, mm. yeah, those anyway. panic attacks can be, I mean, you feel bad for the person suffering it because that's very distressing to them but yeah you definitely mm-hmm. can't jump up and try and open a door that's definitely not going to open anyway right so. and i'm glad that you know hopefully more and more people will start understanding that if somebody starts trying to do that in flight that they don't have to be quite so i mean it's not a good thing it's not a good they, thing but it's it's a medical problem as much as it is a, a psychiatric problem sometimes so but yeah. I think most people out there are thinking, oh, if he opens the door, we're all dead. You know, and oh, yeah. not people understanding don't have to worry that, about that. Yeah. Physics. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, finally, item G, we have an update. Uh, back in, uh, what was it? Uh, was it September? Yes, yeah, September 16th. A uh, Delta Boeing 757 200 uh, had a hard landing uh, at Ponta Delgada. No, it was on August 18th. Um, and, uh, we were all kind of surmising that these kind of situations, when you really have a hard landing and they can't really fly it until it's repaired, uh, oftentimes results in the retirement of said airplane, uh, because a lot of times the pressure bulkheads will be compromised and anything, anytime that happens, then usually the, uh, the airplane is a complete loss. But in this case, apparently they we and we talked about it uh, on an earlier episodes where a uh, Antonov AN124 I think was hired to uh, take some repair equipment and they did whatever was necessary to repair it and at least ferry it back to the states and that occurred on the 16th of September and then they flew the airplane to Nazca, Peru on October 13th. It spent about a month and a half there. This is by the way from Christian Base. Oh, and I was right, Richmond Hill. Ontario. Thank you, Christian, for uh, sending this information. Uh, looks like uh, after about a month and a half in Peru, um, the airplane presumably returned to the U.S. at Jacksonville, and then they uh, flight aware flight radar twenty four shows a whole bunch of flights uh, after that, and so it looks like now it's been put back into service. And uh, Christian says it's good to see this twenty three year old airframe out and in the wild again. So thank you for 
keeping us apprised of that, Christian? And again, I'm kind of surprised. I don't know about the rest of you uh, that they were able to actually, you know, uh, get this I'm just thing. I'm more surprised again. that it was perhaps cost effective to do so for such an older airframe. But mm -hmm. well, I think I'm sure, we did someone, say, I'm sure someone crunched the numbers <clears throat> on it and well, crunched. It, I think it was no one of our uh, one of our few seven uh, fives that are ETOPS. Uh, uh, certified and i think it was an important and it wasn't really that old especially for a, a 757 uh dana you have something i was going to say you know exactly what you kind of said it, you know we have limited amount of uh, aircraft that are, uh, are available 757 is a rear breed so it's it's a crucial aircraft i think in the fleet um that it, you know that that our sister airline would need uh, i think they're they're a rare commodity and and unfortunately they're not no longer made, so it's not easily replaced. So I think that company would go ahead and go out of its ways as as much as it could to, to repair the aircraft as, as reasonably uh, as it could be repaired. Yeah. I agree. And, um, oh, just a quick uh, correction. On the last episode, we were talking about, who was it? Uh, was it uh, Jordan? Yeah, on that really funny audio that he sent in. Uh, telling us to add up the ages of myself and Nick, and then you'd be pretty close to the uh, that first flight by the Wright brothers. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, I, as I put here in the in my notes, I, I, I sometimes get I, I think December third, nineteen seventeen, instead of December seventeenth, nineteen o three. So I kind of get those numbers kind of backwards. A little dyslexic. Yeah, a little mm -hmm. dyslexia there. And uh, so, yeah, that was about within about a decade if you add those th two things up. Um, so, sorry about that. I screwed that one up. But just thought I'd mention that. We try to strive for at least 50% and uh, trying to kind of pull us up above that again. So, there we go. Well done. Uh, Jeff, thank if you. I can say one thing. And yes. I was thinking about what I said back there about the uh -huh. – uh, about the you know the two crashes don't get me wrong folks i mean i i i think we have a lot of uh, very 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 well qualified um uh, private pilots uh, of course uh, dr steph on our crew i just want people you know as, as an instructor and in how i think um when i'm teaching or when i was teaching uh, you know, I teach everybody to fly the aircraft and and think about the operating the aircraft as a professional pilot would so I'm I'm not I was never dishing on any uh, of of any pilot out there. I just think that you know when when we take flying, we have to take every single flight that we are uh, behind the control uh, controls to to be very serious and, and be very safety conscious and, and mindful of what you're doing. So that's really what my point was. Right. There should be no difference in the way we operate our flights. Um, whether we're getting paid and hence being professional pilots or not. No, right. there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that certificate, what, whatever right. certificate it is to get up in the air. So. But if, if you did take offense to what Dana said, it's Dana at AirlinePilotGuy.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was muted the whole time. <laughs> oh, were you saying something? Oh, you were just you were just uh, kind of I, yeah. All the time Dana was saying that, I was muted, so don't blame me. <laughs> Yeah, I could see his lips going, but he, nothing was being said. <laughs> it was coming out. All right. And I was trying to say, no, don't say that, Dan. Don't say and that. While Nick was trying to get back in there to talk. For some reason, my my headphones became unplugged, except that they didn't. 
It's really bizarre. <laughs> There's well, like all kinds of weird sure technical gremlins going on. Are you sure no. you're a doctor? Doctor, yes. <laughs> IT professional, no. <laughs> professional runner, yes. Yes, yes. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you and what you've been up to. And that's the part of the show where we kind of get caught up between episodes. And I think we have a lot to talk about on this episode. At least I do. Um, but I don't want to start. I want to start with, well, we weren't um, privy to what was happening with uh, Dr. Steph because she wasn't able to join us on the last episode. So why don't we, uh, let's hear from Dr. Steph first. Yeah, I can catch you up uh, quickly here. Uh, so as uh, folks in the U.S. will know, last Thursday was Thanksgiving. And in the past, typically I've had Thanksgiving Day off. And then it's been very nice of our company to allow us to have the Friday after Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, the fourth Thursday of the month. Um, however, this year they requested that we um, we actually work. So I said, okay. So I actually took my the vacation that I usually would have taken around that time a week earlier and then came into work on Friday morning. I was not sure if we would actually have a lot of patients to see. And um, to my surprise, almost everyone on my schedule showed up. And it was a very full and busy day and uh, just quite a lot of stuff to deal with. So I was actually hoping I brought my stuff with me to the office that if uh, it was on the slower side, I could jump in and uh, join you guys for a little bit. And as it was, I barely even got to listen to any of the show. Um, I had it going on in the, the background and I spent very little time in my actual office. I was in the examination rooms most of the time back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So kept me on my toes there. Um, and then immediately after work, I actually went over to the airport and um, jumped on a very long flight over to Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, it's like 37 minutes or something uh, time in the air. To Because uh, usually we go to see uh, friends of ours in the Knoxville area for Thanksgiving. We've done that for the past couple of years. It's kind of been a tra tradition. Usually we go before Thanksgiving, spend several days there. This time around, it was just kind of a 30-hour trip, but nice nonetheless. And I have relatives that have also moved to that area, so I got to see them on Saturday morning as well. And then Saturday evening, jump back on the same uh, little CRJ back over to Charlotte and um, kind of had Sunday to recover before going back to work. So that's been been what I've been doing. I thought you were going to um, say you flew over to Knoxville. Uh, you know, yeah, except that the weather wasn't good and no. I don't have a lot of, in those situations where I don't have a lot of time days before and after to make sure that there's, uh, you know, yeah. A, a good buffer? To, I need a buffer if I'm going to fly my myself for those types of trips. Unless it's going to be the same day where, you know, the weather's good that whole day. You go over, you come back. Um, probably could have done, but weather wasn't that great either day. And especially Saturday night, it was just pouring rain and gross and nasty. So, so it is fair to say that was very good, prudent, aero, um, decision aeronautical decision-making. Indeed. On your I part. Have, I have very um, generous um, personal minimums <laughs> for things. So I just don't feel any, any need to take exceptional risks. A smart person you are. Flying for me is, is fun and enjoyable and, you know, I've got that instrument rating and everything else, but I mostly prefer to fly on days when it's nice and sunny and pleasant and there's good views. And I, I have a question. Not put a time pressure on yourself. Exactly. It's very smart. Ghost oh. peppers, uh, chips. Uh, they uh, did not time. happen this time around. We do have, oh. we do have new ones, um, but they are at justice's house and he's had some other family issues going on. So he was not able to join us. So, um, I actually thought about making a run up to Asheville to retrieve the 
the ghost pepper chips or the Carolina Reaper pepper chips. Oh, that's right. Carolina yeah. Reaper. And that was, uh, is, isn't that from last Thanksgiving that we have? Uh, oh, there were two Thanksgivings in a row where I did that. Oh, okay. So this is kind of a tradition now. For it you. has become a tradition a little bit. We broke it this year, but th- they stay good for a while. So maybe we'll keep mm. them until next year. Try for the well, next holiday. I don't think I'll ever be involved in that tradition myself. I think we bought quite a few of them. So I'll, I'll that's make okay. sure to get I'd like to you. try. Yeah, oh, Dana, definitely. I would I'll, love I'll to call it uh, not a tradition, but a bad habit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying, Dana, about decision-making skills? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, you don't have good decision-making skills in that realm because you're here with us on the uh, airline show. Yeah, but wearing that awful T-shirt. What? <laughs> Yeah, check out our nice. Uh, these are brand new, so we had to wear them. Uh, they just arrived yep, in the mail. Right. I, I didn't get the memo. Did you? Oh, get, you didn't see? No, that, you're huh? just cheap. You're a cheap pilot. You didn't. No, get, I, no, I so. wasn't going to wear anything with bloody two propellers on. That's not fair. <laughs> I'm, I'm only kidding, Nick. I think it's a very nice looking airplane. Yeah, it would have taken like three months to get across the Atlantic. I'm not really. I think that's absolutely. a J31 actually. Is that what it is? I was say, it looks like a with, stream with that mid uh, horizontal stabilizer, I guess. Yeah, that's what kind of. That's the first time I've actually looked down and took a really good look at it. Okay, I think that's surprised I didn't uh, do a King Air. It would have been more appropriate, don't yes, you think? Yes, I think so. Like, like I a, think a it's nice a generic piece of clip art, quite honestly. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it resembles the J thirty one. I think you're right. Forty one, yeah. The thirty one, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks, Steph. G- glad to have you back with us. And uh, let's see. How about Dana? What have you been Hi. Speaking Hi. of the T-shirt, did, did yeah. your T-shirt come with this really nice card with has a uh, picture of the Washington Reagan. Well, actually, back there was in Washington National Airport back then uh, of the old terminal. And what it looked like, there was a DC-3 parked in front of it. Well, I'll nice have to check my package uh, packaging. I don't recall ever like, seeing something I like that. I did not see that either. There yeah. was a there was an ad for the company that printed the T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Well, Tony wrote, wrote a nice little note to me. He said, hello, Dana. I finally got a chance to print your T-shirt. Hope you like it. Nice to see you at Oshkosh. Happy holidays. Tony, thank you very much. I remember talking about that, and it was great to meet you as well. Thank you for doing such a great job for us. Um, what happened with me this week? I actually had a, a kind of an interesting week uh, for a change. Um, yesterday was, uh, in, I had picked up a three day trip, had dropped my other trip and picked this three day. And that's why I was a little late putting my, uh, my schedule on the calendar. Um, as a matter of fact, next week, I just picked up uh, another trip. I'm going to be in, uh, Houston downtown for a long overnight and a very short overnight in Omaha next week. Um, and so uh, picking up the trip that I did, I got to go to the triad and uh, had a very nice lunch meetup with uh, RH, Miss AG. Wish AG, wish AG was able to make it out with us, but he was uh, working and uh, RH was a little uh, too busy that day to run me over. It would have been nice to see the facility, but he had too much going on. So, but we went that out. That could be painful. Yeah, I'm sure it can. Getting run over getting run over yeah well it would be painful for the vehicle that did that because it would be broken not me Nah. yeah exactly so we went out for a very nice lunch and had a a a nice lunch this uh, restaurant called southern roots it was fantastic food 
as you know, I'm a foodie, and, and uh, RH had suggested going to a local barbecue place. And I asked him the first question. I think he'd heard of it. Is this a chain? He said, yes. I said, well, if you don't mind, <laughs> I'd like to go someplace local, mom and pup. And it was a, a very, very nice lunch. And we talked quite a bit. We had a really nice uh, meet up and talking about a lot of different cool things about you know his world and, and of course my world um, and uh, then we concluded he dropped me back off and as soon as he dropped me back off I realized darn it we forgot to go ahead and record some audio because <laughs> we were too busy talking and having a good time well why don't you just do like a reenactment right now no I'm just kidding. <laughs> can't impersonate to no <laughs> Here, I'll play RH and you can play you and uh, Steph can like make some background noises like uh, you're in the restaurant. Like, oh, you're d- very playing, good job. Playing some, some dishes. And- How are you doing, Dana? <laughs> I'm good. I'm very good. Did you notice that Jeff trimmed his mustache? No. Like, what? <laughs> I've never. Uh, it doesn't look like he's ever trimmed his mustache. <laughs> <laughs> look at that thing. The handlebars are growing on it now. Looks so like dry food at the end of it. <laughs> hey, can okay. I can I um, bring us closer to fifty percent again? Maybe yes. Uh, so apparently, on the the t shirt is supposed to be a C ninety. Oh really? Yeah. That's yeah, not a C ninety. <laughs> I'm just what saying the, that's what it's supposed to. Be. Well, the C ninety is supposed to have a T tail, right? Uh. Yeah. No. It's not a. No. Oh, I thought a C ninety had a. Uh, had a I'd have to actually go out in the maybe not internet and research yeah. a picture of it. Yeah, um, I don't think. As you guys got to talking about, I'm like I'm pretty sure it's some variant of the King Air. I just had to oh. go and double check, but yeah. No, okay. the tail. Anyways, anyway. so um, I would be remiss. We already kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, well, I think it was off air. It, today is a very uh, historic day in the uh, U.S. of A. We've got December seventh. Uh, Pearl Harbor Day, the day that uh, we entered into World War II. And I would be missed for not mentioning uh, in this past year is when I was actually out in Hawaii, in Honolulu, and uh, visited the uh, Pearl Harbor uh, military base. So uh, very moving experience for me. And the last thing that happened was the most uh, most interesting thing of the week is flying into Daytona Beach uh, this week, which... uh, I think Jeff will mention something about maybe. Uh, anyways, uh, flying into Daytona, coming in over the water uh, at night, about 8.30 in the evening, roughly. Uh, we were about on a five-mile final, just come over the shoreline on the uh, Daytona Beach side, uh, which is passing the coastal uh, on the eastern side of, you know, it's uh, eastern side of Florida. We uh, observed a laser, green laser, enter into the flight deck. Um, I caught it off my left-hand side, and it actually got my eye, uh, left eye, and uh, and also got my FO, apparently, because we both had the loss of uh, night vision there for a few uh, for a few seconds. Not terrible. I mean, not complete loss of uh, vision, but certainly affected our, our vision a little bit. We were on the autopilot, so it wasn't a big deal. But that wasn't the first time it hit us. It hit us four times. Wow. Uh, and I was able to pinpoint it and uh, give the uh, tower a full report as to exactly where it was located um, and uh, give complete details. Once we landed, uh, two passengers had come, had come up to the flight deck and had asked if we had noticed a green uh, light. And I said yes. And 
did it, uh, what, what, can you describe to me what you saw? And they said, yeah, lit up the, the cabin. We saw it. And the, both of those passengers were on the left side of the, ca- you know, the captain side of the aircraft, which is the, the origination. It was about, uh, or hitting what, 250 roughly. It was probably about a 190, a radial off the aircraft, um, about seven miles away. So talked to the local authorities once we got off the aircraft, of course, uh, called in the event, filled out the paperwork. And I still have the uh, FAA paperwork because uh, they do have a five-page questionnaire that we're supposed to do. I did all five pages of it and then went ahead and tried to email it from work because I had a two-hour sit uh, the other night to do it. Couldn't do it. I printed it out, tried to fax it. And anybody from the FAA that's listening in the control center there in D.C., turn on your fax machine, please, because I called them. <laughs> Times I couldn't understand why it wasn't going through. Then I finally called on my cell phone, and it just rang and rang and rang. So I called called the number on the form. Uh, I'd like to get it over to them, and I haven't been unable to. But yeah, it's I had uh, um, some effects from it, as I mentioned, the law, you know, kind of loss of the uh, the um, night vision. I, of course, made sure I didn't focus in on that area again. Um, especially, you know, I, I kind of picked up exactly where it was and I saw the beam moving around. Um, so I wasn't, uh, it, you know, made sure when I saw it kind of coming our way, I looked away. Um, and once, uh, once that was, uh, the only effect I had other than lost night vision, I actually ended up with a slight headache. Um, but I think that was just because of the, the squinting that was involved when I got hit with it. Um, so, uh, no long-term effect. I don't think I have no, no, damage to the eye it was too far away anyways i don't think it was powerful enough and knowing that you know reading the articles that we've had at the company that uh, they've put out in the past uh, it, it you know kind of well versed as to what to, not to do with that and as certainly not look at it look away from it so um that's what happened was kind of crazy geez well i'm glad you're okay mate yeah yeah mm-hmm. unbelievable so, and, and I didn't know this, but it is actually a federal offense. Oh, yes. Federal offense. So, um, you know, uh, actually we were talking about it with, uh, I was talking with the RH, and, you know, because obviously he's in the tower and, and uh, has to deal with this on a fairly regular basis. He told me it's about once a month that they have to deal with it. Really? And, uh, you know, if they catch it, it's a, they had caught just the, recently, I think it, some somebody was telling me uh, locally that was caught. Uh, 15 years in jail. Good. Hmm. Yep. One more reason for me not to fly at night. And that <sighs> can happen at 4 o'clock in the morning, Jeff. Penitentiary, is it? Yeah, but the, the, the people that uh, are up uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning um, probably are not the kind of folks that are going to, unless they've been just drinking all night long. I guess it's still possible. Correct. Um, and yeah. I know you're going to mention it, Jeff, but you missed mm-hmm. fantastic meal in Daytona. Oh, at uh, Peanut and George's? You sure did. Uh, I'm Well, next time I make it down there, if I do, I'll have to check it out. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But before, before we do, I'm kind of concerned about Nick. I was watching the, the screen there, and Nick mm-hmm. looked like he was having some kind of a physiological event. Are you okay? <laughs> I just stretched back to get my phone, and uh, I, I wallet my knee on the desk. Oh, okay. Was, ouch. You know, ouch. Ouch, ouch, ouch. You were experiencing some discomfort. I was like. right in the middle of my kneecap. It really is painful. Uh, I did I'm that the other day, too. It sucks. 
Yeah. Have you recovered enough to uh, cover what you have been up to? Oh, Nick? yes. Uh, as usual, uh, nothing flying related. Sadly. Well, actually, it's not entirely true. It has actually it was. been a pretty busy week for me. Um, um, Monday, I did a photo shoot for a lovely, lovely golden retriever called Chester, and that went very well. It was a gorgeous day, lovely light, uh, nice frosty conditions. So that was super. And uh, then on Tuesday, uh, I got a new doorbell, which is now fitted. Ooh, look. Eee, got doorbell. Oh, uh, is that a ring or similar? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So I'm now. Who's that wearing a. Of robbing my house down. I've got a ring and it'll kill you. <laughs> Or whatever. <laughs> and uh, do you have like a, a URL for the rest of us to kind of tap into the uh, feed as well, so we can oh, see sorry. what's going on at your place? So you can see when the cars have gone. <laughs> yeah. He's gone. Time to go. Time to go. Yeah, yeah, time to get quick knit, knit round. Absolutely. So, uh, and that just caused me no end of trouble because I had to get up into the tiny loft space in our porch and find uh, some hard wire. Anyway, by the by, I came away all cut and bruised. Put the Christmas lights up, so the house is looking very festive right now. Uh, and then, more importantly, on Wednesday, I joined up with uh, Nev from uh, Plain Talking UK, and uh, we met at John Hutchinson's house. Uh, he is uh, Concord pilot extraordinaire, writer, uh, well, he uh, ghost uh, writer did his book called uh, The Wind Beneath My Wings. And uh, Peter UK wanted an interview with him and uh, asked me if I would uh, sit opposite and I'll ask some questions, which I did. And it was a lovely chat I had with John. The time just flew. We were there for nearly, uh, we talked for nearly three hours. So uh, hopefully they've got enough out of that to. Uh, uh, have something for their show. What a gentleman. Uh, what a fascin fascinating life uh, he has lived. And uh, uh, if um, we want to include that book in our list of good reads, I've now read it because that's what I base the interview on. Uh, it's a very um, uh, in-depth story of his life. And he he's had a remarkable life. Uh, he he has crashed two aircraft, or he was in one aircraft that burnt down to the sort of hull 707 at Heathrow. Sadly, some of the passengers were killed. That's after one of their engines uh, departed company straight after takeoff, fell off the aircraft. A dreadful fire. They had to put the aircraft straight onto the crosswind runway that used to exist at Heathrow. I think they were only airborne for just over three minutes because the fire was so fierce, uh, it was going to burn through the wing. And then when they uh, stopped, they evacuated everyone, uh, but uh, sadly not everyone got out. Um, uh, he crashed a light aircraft. He crashed a helicopter. Uh, he ended up fly, fly, flying Concorde, of course. Uh, marvelous chap, but he's, his personal life, he's had some tragedies as well, and he's very open about it all. It's a, it's a fascinating read, so uh, that was a good uh, interview. Uh, on the next day, Thursday, uh, I got collared by uh, um, Every Little Thing, the podcast, to uh, do an airline pilot bit again, and I managed to get a few plugs in for the show, I think. So hopefully, I know we've already got some listeners yep. who found us through every little thing, and I really appreciate that. So uh, that was really nice to uh, chat to them again and uh, give a few more stories. I think they were expecting now that I've retired that I could tell them all the dirty secrets about <laughs> 
quite a hard job. <laughs> and actually, I said, well, actually, there aren't really any dirty secrets. I think they were a bit disappointed. <laughs> uh, they're not going to invite you back. <laughs> no, they're not. I think it's the last time I'm going to uh, do that. What a dud that was. We were expecting some scintillating. Yeah, some dirt on the airline yeah. industry. Exactly right. So uh, apart from uh, doing the plain tale, uh, which I did yesterday, uh, it's been every day of my week has been absolutely chocker. It's been a good week. Enjoyed it. Good. Wow. You are definitely keeping busy. That's for sure. Oh, for sure. All right. And then. Uh, finally, uh, let me tell you about the fun that I've been having. First of all, um, been very busy as well uh, with, uh, of course, the weekend. Uh, as many of you know who have listened to the show, I, I'm quite involved now in the the music uh, ministry of several different ensembles I sing with at, at my uh, church. And then on Sunday, um, I was about to leave and the choir director for the big choir asked me if I were, uh, if I was flying a trip this week. And I said, yeah, I go out on Wednesday. And she said, uh, would you be interested in singing with a basically a quartet um, for um, a couple of funerals, one on Monday and one on Tuesday? And I'm thinking, uh-oh. Um, I have tried to sing at funerals before and, in a choir, but it, it was I couldn't do it because I, when I get upset, I cannot. I, I guess my vocal cords um, contract, and I can't talk very well, and I can't sing for sure. Um, but uh, that was... Because I knew the people involved, you know, the the deceased or the family members and that kind of thing. And so it was all a very, you know, emotional situation. In this case, though, the two different people that uh, uh, we had funerals for, I, I'd never heard of before. So I didn't know who they were. I didn't know any of the um, families involved. So it was not a problem at all. Although the first one, one gentleman was up uh, before the actual funeral mass started and had a few things to say about the gentleman who had past and i realized about oh maybe a couple of paragraphs in that i need to not pay attention anymore to what he's saying because he's starting to get emotional and break up and i'm starting to feel that way myself i'm thinking okay check my phone out here i'm in the balcony by the way i'm not doing this <laughs> right right in front where everybody can see it and start trying to distract myself i think i actually started communicating with some of the apg community uh via the social meds just to keep my mind off it. But anyway, it went very well. It was a lot of fun uh, singing, especially the second funeral where we sang uh, Panis Angelicus, which is a very uh, beautiful Latin sacred um, hymn. Anyway, uh, and then Wednesday, left for a trip, a very difficult trip to begin with. Uh, one leg the first day, two legs scheduled the second day, and then three, sort of three Ooh, legs. strenuous. Yeah, the last leg, actually the last day is two active flying legs and then deadhead back from Oklahoma City. So um, I was already looking forward to this trip because, well, not only because of the fact that very few legs to fly, which many of you know that that's the kind of trip I like. Um, but uh, my first leg was from Atlanta to Toronto, where I got to meet up with producer Liz. And in fact, um, I hope you don't mind, Liz, but I'm going to bring you into the uh, the video. She doesn't normally like to do this, but she's looking just wonderful today. Hello, Liz. How are you? Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. I'm well. Hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. So that's Liz's beautiful voice. And she picked me up from the hotel. And we had a very nice lunch at the, I've, I always forget the name of the place, Liz. Amsterdam Barrel House. Amsterdam Barrel House. Very nice beer. Had Bone Shaker IPA. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both had lovely salads. 
And uh, then we uh, went over to uh, Liz's new place, her new condominium, which is uh, looking really snazzy because now uh, all of her furniture is in and and it's really looking nice. And uh, so we got a chance to um, uh, drink some bubbly and have a great conversation. And we just uh, had a great time. And then she took me back uh, to the hotel. She didn't have that much to drink. Don't worry. I was the one that was doing most of it. By the way, did you ever get a chance to um, drink any of that uh, chocolate wine? Not yet. Nope. Uh, you'll have to let me know how that Chocolate wine? Ooh, what it says. That sounds fabulous. That sounds like a really nice thing. Yeah. So, um, let's see what else. Yeah, so it was early evening when she returned to me to, oh, should we talk about the fact that a, a car almost scraped the side off of Liz's car when she was returning me to the hotel? Jeez. Yeah. Luckily, Uh-oh. it was just, uh, it, we looked, I, mean, I felt so horrible because I'm thinking, well, if it weren't for me, then she wouldn't have been involved in this accident. Uh, the, the driver of the car just kept on driving and we couldn't have caught, caught up with uh, them if we tried. So when we got to the, the little turn turnabout turnaround area in front of the hotel, we went outside to look and see what kind of. And I was just, I was just bracing for a horrible, um, you know, something. And uh, we couldn't find a scratch on uh, Liz's nice, really Ford Escape. Oh well, that's yeah. good. That is yeah. a few. What I was really impressed about was the fact that Liz's attitude about it was well, she didn't seem like, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> it happens. I think, really? <laughs> I would be very upset about this. Anyway, so um, the, oh, when we were meeting, I think, was it at lunch that you told me that you were going to be traveling with me the following day back to Atlanta? She's going to do a Dr. Steph. <laughs> exactly. Inspired by Dr. Steph. I'm uh, become an influencer of sorts, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary thing. I know. <laughs> uh, so she said, yeah, I'm going to be flying on your flight back uh, in the morning to Atlanta. And then I'm going to meet up with uh, dispatcher Mike. And uh, he's going to fix some, uh, smoke up some barbecue. And uh, we're going to have a, a little party over there at the uh, the Carol's household in Noonan. And I thought, oh, that is, that is so awesome. So I went to bed and... Uh, noticed when I got up in the morning that I had a tweet from Liz that said, are you still operating the flight that you were supposed to? Because it's not leaving until one thirty. <laughs> huh? What, what is she talking about? And so then I looked and saw that I had a couple of messages on my phone, uh, from the company. And then I looked at a, our little app that shows the scheduling and acknowledge, uh, uh notifications. And, uh, sure enough, they had delayed our flight until one thirty. Now it, they kept moving it actually up a little bit. So I think that the final schedule adjustment was a uh, eleven forty-five, but because it was delayed, um, it meant that we couldn't fly our flight from Atlanta to Daytona Beach, where I was going to meet up with Dana, and we were going to have lunch at P and G's, uh, where he said it was a lovely meal, and uh, I missed out on that. However, the good news of that is that um, they didn't have any more flying for me that day. And they said that we were going to have a domicile layover in Atlanta. And so, oh, by the way, uh, Blake, my first officer, really nice guy. He's been with the company for a couple of years. And uh, he uh, kind of got all caught up and up to speed on this uh, podcast and the community surrounding it. And um, wasn't able to join Liz and I on the first day. But on the second day, I said, hey. Uh, I'm going to, I've just been now invited to this uh, get together over at uh, Mike's place and was wondering if you might 
uh, be interested in, in joining us for that as well. And so he did some calling, uh, check, checking with home and all that kind of stuff. And he said, yeah, I'm going to do that. So what we did was we ended up getting a couple of uh, hotel rooms near the airport. And uh, Mike and Blake and myself uh, and Liz uh, headed down to Noonan. And we had a wonderful afternoon. Great uh, food and great beer and great conversation. What, what do you think, Liz? It was just fantastic. I mean, it was such an interesting set of circumstances because on Wednesday, Mike was uh, poking fun at you and saying, oh, yeah, Jeff, you better phone in sick tomorrow so you can come for dinner. And of course, Jeff, being the kind of person he is, was going, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And then just because of the other plane going um, tech, you were able to have dinner with us. So that was just great. Yeah, it worked out really, really well. And uh, and and by the way, Blake, uh, I think the day before when I was meeting up with Liz, um, started listening a little bit to the APG show, and he goes, he said, "You have, I think he said, you have three new listeners or three new mm-hmm. community members." I'm not, I guess, oh, I, I well, think hi, it must Blake mean his uh, his uh, his wife and his son. And so, uh, yes, hello, um, Canonans. Uh, so. Uh, Anyway, I, I don't know if he's listening right now or not, but uh, really enjoyed flying with you, Blake, and uh, hope that you become part of our community here because uh, the more, the merrier, I say. So, um, so speaking such of, a, um, oh, yeah. go ahead, sorry, didn't no. need to cut you off. I was going to say, speaking of um, decision making and stuff earlier on about flying, that day was absolutely beautiful. Um, it was like sixty degrees here in the southeast and sunny and nice, and I went, oh, it's Thursday afternoon, and I am done with work at like noon and it would be a great day to fly down to to georgia and see all of you guys and i had a work meeting at 5 30 so wah, 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 wah. Wah. but it looked amazing <laughs> and i'm sorry i couldn't join you guys because well your, your lunch meeting, looked I, amazing stuff you, oh you, that, that, that work provided dinner in the box yeah the box lunch what kind of sandwich it was <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile i'm getting pictures of you know the, the smoked uh pork and <laughs> pulled pork and yeah, all that it was great it's great like, smoked oh, pork yeah. mm. glad, glad you guys were able to do that that was yeah we're sorry great. that you weren't able to join us uh, no there's fun. there'll be more chances don't worry so. anyway just before i sign off i just want to say that i had such fun on jeff's flight i was able to listen to his pas which are just as good as i expected and the landing Liar. was fantastic. And boy, does he taxi fast. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you when you land on, Dana, we landed on 2-6 right. So it kind of explained how that all works. There's a high speed that uh, enables us to, you know, tr- uh, taxi at uh, higher than normal speeds. And then we go around this, uh, what we call the victory loop or the victor loop um, around. And, uh, you know, you don't have to go too slow on that um unless it's slippery <laughs> and you don't, don't want to go too fast on that because you'll slide into the wall but uh so yeah we were coming into the ramp and uh, it was one of those situations i have to admit um a little issue uh making it to the ramp uh, we had already uh, or blake had already switched over to the ramp control frequency i was still monitoring as i do the uh, ground control and sort of trying to understand what they were telling us to do for the ramp and then ground control said, um, Acme, so-and-so, are you going to give way to the RJ that's leaving the ramp? And I said, yes. And right around that time I was having the exchange on the radio, uh, the ramp control was telling us, uh, giving us instructions on what she wanted us to do to enter the ramp uh, for North. And I 
heard what I wanted to hear. I heard that we were supposed to come in on the right and then go back to the left because there was that other little RJ there waiting to come out. And that was not what she wanted me to do. She wanted me to actually come in where that RJ was. So let the RJ come out and then come in on that side of the ramp. And uh, all it all came together in a, uh, oh, you'll under, you'll appreciate this, Dana. Uh, we were, we landed with uh, like 100 and we may have been like 115,000 pounds. So <laughs> very, very light. Uh, both engines were still running. Okay. So I'm mm-hmm. setting up for the. I know exactly where you're going. So, uh, and then all of a sudden, a sudden, like Blake's going, you know, I don't think she wanted us to come in on this side. And then I noticed that there's a, a airplane that's actually pushing out from the gate and I went, Ooh, and I put the brakes on and then bam, 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 bam. It was just a, a major. Were shutter. you doing what you say that you don't like to do is have that shutter? <laughs> yes. Because exactly. you had to stop the airplane quick. That, that I thing. told Blake, I said, you know, I haven't had that happen to me in probably at least 10 years because I try to, I really do pride myself on not ever experiencing the, the brake shuttering, stuttering, stuttering, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. In that case, I didn't have a chance to finesse it. It was like, oh, I need to stop the airplane because if I don't, then I might hit this airplane that's pushing out of this gate. So. We got all sorted, uh, sorted out. I, I got onto ground control and I said, yeah, I kind of screwed up here. Uh, can you, you know, take out the RJ that's on the uh, east side of the ramp? And so she, she got all that sorted out and we were able to move out of the way. So, um, yeah, the flight was great until right there at the end. And of course, <laughs> she had Liz on the airplane. I know. I'm thinking, oh, you know, I, perfect, I don't Jeff. think she even noticed, did she? Did yeah, she noticed. Like, no, I did not. <laughs> I did uh, not. Really? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, never I mean, mind. When you're you just back, told you on yourself. Yeah. When None of that happened. Back, I don't know. You don't have I don't any know idea. What? <laughs> that, was, that was all a that <laughs> figment of your imagination. Yeah, it must have been a different flight. Yeah. But that was a dream that I had, I think, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. It was a nightmare, actually, because you actually got the airplane you know, shaking pretty bad. Anyway, yeah. Jeff, thanks so much for the inspiration. We just had, I certainly had a great week, and it was great fun to fly with Jeff, and, and Mike couldn't have been more hospitable, so we had a, a great few days, so thanks. Uh, Mike Mike and Naomi and their children, their beautiful children, uh, just a wonderful time over at uh, Mike's place. So uh, it's too bad that, Dana, you weren't back or in town you with know, the Domino's Island. Originally, you know? I was supposed to be off on those days. Oh, really? Oh, that's uh, right. You picked up off my trip. So yeah, that mm-hmm. would have been so awesome. Uh, I missed oh, it. Oh, well. We'll do it again sometime, I'm sure. It'll, it'll the uh, the carols love um, to entertain. So, yeah, they actually want me to come over tonight, um, but we yeah. already have a Christmas uh, party to go to. I would have loved to. I haven't yet to be to their house, um, so uh, my wife and I would love to get down there and visit them. We're just working out the time, it's just trying to find the right time. And yeah, you know, unfortunately, I missed this past week. You know, Jeff, you m- mentioned taxi. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talk about it. Forget it. <laughs> huh? What were you, were you going to ding me again or something? Or no, uh, this is company called Acme Blue. Yeah, yeah. Last night, absolutely dorked up our entire operation into not just us, but everybody coming in on the arrival on the Aussie arrival last night. Really? Uh, yeah. Pretty much, you know, light turbulence the whole way down. You know, mm-hmm. through like uh, we were at 22 on the cruise and we're coming down through about 18. That's when it stopped. Uh, proceeded to, he was leading the pack, slowed the aircraft down to 270 knots in front of the entire pack. So the next thing you know, ATC is going ahead and slowing everybody behind him down. And uh, we're all having to reduce way, way, way back. And we're all doing pie ripping that this is nothing more than light chop 
Mm-hmm. Then, of course, he gets on the ground in front of us because he's the aircraft directly in front of us and then proceeds to do the exact loop that you're talking about. And before even passed the first high speed off of two six right, I was already on his tail. He was yeah. taxiing that slow. Being very, very careful. Extremely careful. <laughs> so much so that I actually yes. keyed the mic and said, minimum taxi speed here gentlemen and then proceeded to turn on all my lights when i was right on his butt <laughs> so that's a little passive aggressive there dana <laughs> a little but you know he, he was being it was absurd no i understand he but... was being absolutely it's kind of like being behind somebody on the highway that is just doing 10 miles below the speed limit and i, I actually had my fo look because on I, I don't know if you remember this chef but on atlanta uh, on the 10 9, there used to be a speed posted. Uh, I think it was 20 knots or it was 30 knots. Um, I, I, the only thing I could recall on there, at least now, is that they, they do have a speed restriction for the, for the big heavies. Big, big heavies, um, but there used to be yeah. a, a note on there to, you know, min, minimum taxi speed or something to that effect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, either 20 or 30 knots in Atlanta, you know, because it, it's, you know, it's a, a vast airport and the airplane, the, the airport really operates really well and the flow is as such that it supports it and these guys i mean i quite literally took about three minutes to get from the end of the you know when i came off the runway just to get to the victor loop that wasn't even to get on the loop that was just to the end of the runway in corner of victor loop and was it hotel right there Uh, i just and it was of course freedom like last leg Laura Davis has said, this is maybe a good title for the show, Taxi Rage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nice one. Dana experienced Taxi Rage. Taxi Rage. (laughs) You might be on another cover. (laughs) Taxi Rage. It was absurd. Anyway, yeah, I know what you mean. It's very frustrating when when you get behind somebody that's just barely moving. It's like, barely. uh, is ground control is the airplane in front of me having uh, some kind of issue? Uh, do they do we, are they de- have they declared an emergency? <laughs> and then uh, he got the funny part is that he then he got on the Victor loop and he was about on two wheels on going around the corner. He was going so fast. I was like, oh, what in the world's wrong with this guy? Oh, I know what happened. Uh, as soon as he left the uh, runway, he had to check his messages on his phone. And then once he had done all that, then he was free to go ahead and speed up again. Correct, and go around and go around the the turns at a very high rapid speed that I couldn't even keep up, keep up with them. Oh, that's all. <laughs> it's crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Just, well, anyways, I hate you to interrupt your, your, your story, but oh, you right. mentioned Atlanta taxi and, and yeah. uh, how one, one airplane can dork everything up for that's a true. very, very efficient operation. Yeah, that's what I tried to do. Dork everything up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, just quickly, that uh, third day after we, um, uh, so because we didn't go to Daytona Beach, uh, so we didn't have to fly from Daytona Beach back to Atlanta. So we got to start a little bit later in the morning, uh, not late in the morning, but later than we would have, and uh, just fly to Oklahoma City. And then all we had to do was just uh, deadhead on the way back from Oklahoma City. But before the uh, flight from Atlanta to Oklahoma City, I was able to quickly meet up with Perry Hammond. And he was um, in the same concourse heading to Burbank uh, for a, a Air National Guard weekend, I believe, or maybe Navy Reserve. Um, sorry, Perry, I forget which one. I think, it, yeah, Naval Reserve, maybe. And uh, he was heading out to um, uh, somewhere in 
uh, central California, I believe, on the coast. And I forget exactly what what place. But um, anyway, it was nice seeing uh, Perry. Unfortunately, the shuttle surface at the uh, at the airport hotel wasn't um, very uh, quick and efficient, and uh, didn't get there as early as, as I'd hoped. So, but at least we got a chance to see each other. And he uh, sent me uh, via. Uh, email or messaging or whatever, a photo that he had taken of the airplane that we flew from um, Atlanta to Oklahoma City at Gate B1. And it's a beautiful photo of the mad dog with the sunrise um, in the background. So very nice. Yeah, that's Thank the you, prettiest museum shot I've ever seen. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> and but Dana, I was just curious, did that guy break check you? Is that why you got so angry? I didn't get angry. I was just, I was just irritated. <laughs> it's a very big frustration. Actually, Laura just said, uh, "Should have honked, Dana." Actually, I did because we have that that button in the in the flight deck that's a mechanic call and goes. <laughs> I, I mean, probably didn't hear it. I though. did actually hit that. <laughs> <laughs> it helps, right? Well, yeah. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe nobody heard it, but you heard it. Uh, it's all bad. Made you feel good. Okay, that's enough. Um, again, great time with uh, spending a couple of days with Liz. Great surprise. Thanks again, Liz, for that. And uh, thank you, Mike, for inviting not only myself, but my uh, first officer as well over to your house. He really had a great time. Couldn't stop talking about it. So, anywho, uh, let's just quickly do the um, coffee fund and then we'll move on to feedback. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Now, the reason why, if you're watching the video, I'm the only one in the big screen, it's because all of the crew, including our producer, have left their positions to uh, take a physiological break, I guess. Anyway, this is the part of the show where we talk about the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially. And since the last episode, we have a recurring contribution from Randolph Ackerman. Randy, thank you very much, sir, for that. And uh, we also have another way of uh, supporting the show. And the show is not advertiser-supported, but user-supported. And we do a, uh, we like that. Uh, it's kind of a value for value kind of a thing. So if you get value from the show, we hope that you uh, kind of consider uh, contributing to our cause. And uh, we have another way to do it, which is Patreon. And you can become a patron of the show by uh, designating a certain amount per episode. And since the last episode, no new producers. We like to call our patrons producers as well. And so that's okay, though. We have a great group of folks already over there um, signed up as patrons for the show. So if you want to get with them, this great group of people, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with item one from Brian in Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, APG crew. I'm a 200-hour private pilot who is currently working toward my commercial pilot certificate. Since I recently decided to aim toward the regional airlines, I'm planning to obtain a first-class medical certificate next week. I've had a third class until now. However, my BMI, that stands for what stuff? Body mass index. 
body mass index is at 40%. I'm six foot tall or six feet tall and 298.2 pounds. Ooh, that's precise. In my initial correspondence with my AME over the phone, he mentioned that he will likely send me to visit a board-certified sleep specialist for a sleep apnea study. What can I expect, and how might this affect the possibility of me obtaining a first class? For the first time since obtaining my private pilot certificate, I'm worried about my future in aviation. Thanks for any insight you might have into this process. Yeah, any insight? I have a lot of insight for that. Okay. Um, you know, it's something that's important that the FAA has um, kind of the, from a medical standpoint, has had on their radar for a while now. Um, and what they used to do was that if your BMI was greater than 40, you would automatically be sent for um, a sleep study, see a, a sleep specialist potentially. Um, there's some new guidance that they're not using BMI alone, but they are trying to identify pilots who might be at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and one of those risk factors can be having a higher BMI, having a, a larger neck circumference, those types of things, anything that can obstruct your airway while you're you're sleeping. Because um, that can certainly, if you're not sleeping well during the night, that can affect your uh, alertness during the day, can lead to being more drowsy and um, uh, not a good thing for pilots. So what they do, um, if your AME recommends it, they will, um, you'll get a letter actually back from the FAA after your medical examination requesting that you have a sleep apnea study done. Um, that can actually be done by a number of folks, either your AME if they offer it, or they could send you to a sleep specialist. I suspect that most will send you to a specialist to have that done officially. Usually those evaluations are done in-home, so you can expect that. Um, and then they take that information and decide if you do meet the criteria for a diagnosis of sleep apnea, if it needs to be treated, um, all of those types of things. If, and there can be a bunch of different pathways there, depending on what the, the information comes back as. Um, but not to worry that if you do have sleep apnea and it is treated effectively, you can certainly get a class one medical with a special issuance. So, but it has to be treated. If it's not, if you have sleep apnea and it's not treated satisfactorily, that is disqualifying. Which... I have a very good friend of mine that has sleep apnea. Uh, you wouldn't even think he fits into this qualification of the BMI. He actually doesn't of 40%. And I've had this fight uh, with them. Yeah, wasn't there something about like a neck size that they were ne talking about, size, Dana? Like mm -hmm. last BMI, year? all that. And yeah. I am not going to start training over stones because I don't have any of the symptoms. That's I fit that profile. But yeah, and this is where it's a, an individual thing, and that's why they're giving them more leeway with some of the, the guidance for who they're sending, because there are folks who are within normal body mass index uh, size who do not have the larger neck circumference who can still have obstructive sleep apnea. They're going to look at other things like they might start out, if you, if you mention at all, that you're frequently drowsy during the day, that you fall asleep quickly during the day, if you're not alert, that type of stuff. Yeah, if you're like Jeff and nodding off in the middle of a podcast, <laughs> yeah, yep. it's so boring here. Um, <laughs> point of um, uh, keeping us above 50%. It's actually not a percentage. Uh, the formula is actually a kilogram per meter or kilogram divided by meter squared. Uh, so it's not percent. It's just a, a number. Anyway, um, neither here nor there, but uh, striving for accuracy. And, 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 yeah, striving and, for accuracy. <laughs> and here's the thing. I mean, my, my buddy's had two surgeries, right? And mm -hmm. he still has obstructive sleep apnea. So he's not able to fly. He's lost his ability to to make a you know to make a living as a pilot, 
he's out of medical and will probably be out for forever. So, so that can't be uh, regulated with a uh, CPAP and all that kind has, of stuff. There's he, different ways to to treat it, and sometimes it, it can't be. But. It can't. Oh, yeah, really? He, sometimes he a CPAP, CPAP doesn't help. CPAP oh. doesn't always help. No, so oh. it's it's a it's a tough tough situation, and you got to be careful on that. So yeah, I mean I've. Uh, me personally, I, you know, I, I wear the Apple Watch. I have actually a, a sleep number bed, and I ask the the question to the you know the spousal unit, and uh, also how do I feel during the day? And fortunately, I don't have uh, have that issue. I'm, yeah. I'm very lucky in that regard because I'm not to- probably old, a little old information because I think this uh, this particular circular from the FA was from 2015, but at that time they had 4,917 uh, certificated pilots being treated for sleep apnea and flying on special issuance medical certificates. So completely possible to do if, yeah, you, can be, if you can be treated. Yep. So, but, uh, you know, it may not even be something that necessarily applies to you, Brian. Um, you know, you have, doesn't sound like you've been diagnosed with it previously by your physician or anyone else. Um, but it, since it's be something that they're, uh, Concerned about for pilots, um, if they send you for the evaluation, it may come out that you don't actually have sleep apnea at all. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't assume it's going to automatically be. I mean, and that's why I'm using myself as an example, Brian, is that, you know, just because you're BMI and I'm, I'm right there. I mean, listen, professional football players in America that are uh, very athletic, very muscular and very fit uh, quite regularly have BMIs in that range. All right, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you know you're automatically going to be uh, associated with it, and just like you know with me, as as Jeff said earlier, I'm all muscle, not really. Um, but uh, you know, it, you can have a high BMI and, and be fairly fit and not have to worry about it. So I, you know, just go get evaluated. That's the biggest. On thing. the on the flip side of the coin, too, Laura brings up a good point that um, a lot of people out there do have sleep apnea. And- don't realize it. Um, And if you do and are not being treated for it, it can lead to a lot of other health problems that can be problematic down the road. So not necessarily a bad thing to discover that you have it and can be treated for it. Important to be treated. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. And to be treated well. Item two. Happy Thanksgiving to the crew. I dusted off the flight sim at home this morning and it got me thinking about the likely upcoming addition of commercial flights at Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Marietta, which would fly over my home. I've heard comments that FedEx is interested in this, as it would give them more options to get their parcels closer to the metro area. The Atlanta Braves seemed to be interested for themselves in visiting teams flying in, which was much more of a first-world problem, in my opinion. And then he sent us a gave us a link to uh, an article talking about uh, the uh, county of Marietta, uh, not county of Marietta, Co- Cobb County commissioners consider uh, opening doors or opening the Dobbins Air Reserve base to some civilian or private use. And he said, do you have any thoughts about this? And uh, he has some other questions as well. Um, well, I'll continue with what he was saying. Uh, a couple of other related questions. Some airports are both open to commercial and military aviation today, right? I think Charleston, South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, is an example. And yes, you are right. That is a shared base or joint use base between the U.S. Air Force and the uh, city of Charleston, South Carolina. That's where we fly in. And another place that I can think of just right off the top of my head, and I'm I'm sure that there are more, is uh, Eglin Air Force Base in uh, Fort Walton Beach, 
Florida is also. Mm-hmm. And that one is mostly a military base and just a tiny little part of it. Uh, they have a civilian air terminal uh, where we uh, taxi to, which usually takes a very long time <laughs> because we're usually landing on a on the runway that is on the east side of the airport. And then we have to taxi miles to get to the uh, the terminal. There are actually but, 21 mixed joint wow. use airports in the U.S. Now, I wonder if that includes places That's, like... Um, um, Let's see what I'm trying to think of in Wisconsin. Um, yes. Uh, uh, Madison. Uh, Sparta. No. Um, no, I'm thinking of Madison. Where they have like guard mm-hmm. units and mm-hmm. air reserve mm-hmm. units that share the airport. No. No. These are I just strictly. See. Yeah. Uh, oh, this okay. is the FAA's list of joint civilian military. So what are some other? Uh, Palmdale, California. Dover, Delaware. Um, oh, yeah. San Antonio, Texas. There's Lack- uh, Lackland Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Kelly. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch. Okay, I didn't yeah. realize that Dover. I thought Dover was just Yuma, a, Arizona, strictly a Navy yeah. Air Force base. Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, and his question is, how do these airports pass civilian and military air traffic between towers and frequencies? LiveATC.net only seems to have public feeds of civilian airports, and understandably, FlightAware.com does not have any tracking of military planes that I've noticed. Uh, actually, the usually in those cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dana, uh, the actual controllers the uh, approach controllers departure controllers and tower and ground control and all that kind of stuff is usually the military people correct and uh, they do a fine job and uh, so there really is no i mean they they just do everything all the traffic is treated pretty much the same so there's no like separate tower controllers for military and tower controllers for the civilian traffic so that's not really a problem at all and and really it's Unless you just happen to know that this is mostly a military base and we're just using it, you know, with our commercial flight, uh, you probably probably would not notice that much of a difference. Certainly don't at, at Charleston. Uh, I, that feels like more uh, an, a civilian airport mm-hmm. than a military airport to me. And of course, Boeing has a big plant; they're a big factory where they're Making building a bunch dream of liners. their Dreamliners. So, is that the only place that they build the Dreamliner? Or do uh, they do it out on the West assembly. Coast, too? It's final assembly okay. for Dreamliner, yeah. Anyway, so uh, this article that he linked us to, um, when a scheduled review of the United States military bases set off a minor panic in 2014, county leaders uh, in Cobb County stepped up to extol the benefits of Dobbins Air Reserve Base. They saw how four military bases had al- closed almost 10 years earlier and feared that Dobbins might be next. The consolidation never came, but its specter remains. And uh, let's see. Finding additional military or non-military operations of the runway will assist in assuring long-term mission sustainment, County Chairman Mike Boyce wrote. And increasing partnerships is a vital part of current military operations as it allows for cost sharing, revenue generation, and building a presence in the community where military installations are located. Now, this uh, Air Reserve Base, Dobbins, is, I mean, right in the, um, it's, it's not like out in the middle of nowhere. It is smack dab, uh, almost, well, I don't know if center, but it's it's a big part of Cobb County and uh, in the area that uh, Dana lives. I mean, and you're not really close to the Air Reserve Base, but it's- uh, Very close it's, to it. Are you? Okay. Very close. It's right in, you know, it's it's uh, part of the city, basically. I mean, it's part of Atlanta. Uh, so it, it would make sense. Yeah, I mean, certainly for uh, for. Uh, Dignitaries like uh, the president have have flown in there. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very convenient to the north side of Atlanta. Um, any 
baseball teams that are coming in or in, in big events that fly into town to u- utilize the new uh, SunTrust uh, Park would uh, be right down the road from it. Um, as a crow flies, what, three nautical mi- air nautical miles probably from it mm-hmm. uh, quite often at night when they're doing engine runs in the C-130s, doing tests. I can hear oh. uh, the, the C-130s operating, and uh, we're not – really into the final approach path we're actually just to the south of it so you know it's a uh, more or less a northeast southwest runway i think mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the specific numbers on it. i think it's like two southeast northwest i think yeah yeah north yeah. i mean northwest yeah, yeah. that's what i meant saying yeah. uh, southeast yeah, northwest yeah. um so we're we're kind of almost due south of it so i guess really if they're on a on a uh, a downwind they'll kind of fly over my house but that doesn't happen particularly often um but yeah it's it's uh i think it would be a fantastic idea to open it up not generally for you know for um uh, full commercial operations but certainly for some operations because it's you know it's a very long runway it's uh, yeah. at least ten thousand feet well you know i think longer. they built the c5 there uh, lockheed has um uh, as you mentioned the c-130 is still billing, being built, built there. there that's correct and i think if i'm not mistaken i think they built the c5 as well there i um, think you're right sure uh, so obviously, it has big long runways to, uh, yeah, or yeah. runway, I guess, basically. A, do they have more than one runway? Or no, just only one? one runway. Okay, but I'm it's big. Curious. Do they have a resto-wise, Jeff? I think they do. I'm not positive about do you have that. To land over them, or can they? Can you trample them? Well, I'm not sure about Dobbins Air Reserve Base because I've never flown. Well, I, I take that back. I have flown in there when I was in the Air Force, but I don't remember anything about it. Um, but the uh, Fort uh, Walton uh, Beach, uh, Eg- Eglin Air Force Base, uh, and, and Charleston both have the um, arresting cables that can b- either be up or down. And um, okay. at Charleston, they're very rarely up, uh, although I, there was one time I was taking off and it was, <laughs> it was a, a story I don't really want to talk about. And uh, the uh, at Fort Walton Beach, they are typically up most of the time, I would say, uh, wouldn't you, um, Dana? And, Nine, and then, 98 to 99% of the time there. Yeah. Um, so you have to plan on basically, uh, it, it becomes a much shorter runway for us because we don't, we try to, you know, land beyond the, uh, arresting cable and then obviously taxi off of the runway before the one at the other end of the, of mm. the runway. Which is very, the big thing for the, the mad dog is especially on the nose gear that we have that, uh, this the splash guard and debris deflector, um, and it's very low to the ground, so it doesn't take very much to really take it off. Um, so if you hit it at any type of speed, Jeff, <laughs> <laughs> everything everything worked out, Dana. <laughs> All right, everything worked out. Only joking. And just rem- a reminder to everyone: I fly for Acme Airlines. Um. Anyway, yeah. So they say, uh, they say Acme. That is. No, I, I wasn't correcting you. Or I was just okay. making sure that people um, understood that I'm not affiliate, affiliated with any other airline that flies this type of airplane into those kind of places. No. Uh, but uh, let's see. The uh, well, What else was I going to say? So that is something definitely when we fly into these joint use bases that uh, we have to think about. And there's usually a, you know, well, there is a company page that we refer to and it has all the the schematics drawn out of where these arresting cables are and to plan and ask when you're coming in, if they're up or down and, um, you know, be cognizant of the fact that there is something on this runway that you're not used to dealing with and you should be aware of it. Yeah. 
So, um, but I thought was interesting in this article, uh, private use of the airstrip would, would be limited to the base's current flight times, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Daily use is not expected to exceed 30 takeoffs or landings per day. Now, I'm thinking if one of the cargo carriers like UPS or FedEx want to come in and operate, I'm not, I'm not sure that they'd be able to operate with those within those. 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. sounds like the wrong side of the clock for their right. operations. I'm not sure exactly how that would work out, or maybe they'd give exemptions to like FedEx and UPS if yeah, they were to use Father the airport. Christmas would have a problem, too. Oh, <laughs> I see. Okay. It took uh, us a while Christmas to kind of... It didn't take me a minute. Angle. I was just... <laughs> With the packages being delivered yeah, well, for he's, Christmas. Know, he's a nocturnal sort. But I thought they used the, the sleigh, Nick. Come on. They just go directly to everyone's well, individual house. pop in every now and again and pick up <laughs> spare packages, surely. Okay. Wow, you threw all of us off with that one. <laughs> I just wasn't entirely sure where... Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so thank you, uh, Robert in Marietta, Marietta, which is where the Dobbins Air Reserve Base is located. And, uh, yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see. I think that, uh, to me, it looks like a win-win uh, situation and it will perhaps help uh, keep that um, airport operating for much longer and, and, and not. And oddly enough, the county commissioner that is over that area is actually a active 330 first officer, I understand. Oh, well, Bob. That, that would maybe help, too. I'm not going to use his last name, but his name is Bob. Oh, yeah, um, I know Bob. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just Neil, kidding. Neil and Bob. Bob. Bob, Neil, oh, and Bob's your oh, he's he's your uncle. There you go. Yes, yeah, yes. Uncle Bob. <laughs> or uh, you know what? I, I this is a family show. I'm not even go there. I was okay, just going to say you. something. I'm I'm shutting up. Um, All right, thank you. Uh, let's see. Item three, Claire. Uh, on episode four hundred one, a couple of episodes ago, we uh, had a question about uh, gliding and micro lights, and. Uh, Claire says, dear APG crew, I just caught up with APG 401 and I hope I can contribute a little to Thomas, Thomas in Scotland's question about flying for fun in the UK. Since August this year, I've been a very proud owner of a UK MicroLite pilot's license. Cue cheers and whoops. Okay. Woohoo. Yeah. Yay. I just noticed it. I should have been better. Uh, a qualification that took three years for me to earn due to all sorts of factors, but a youngster like Thomas should take much less time if the Scottish weather is relatively kind. Hmm, that could be a tough one, right? I hear the Scottish weather is not relatively kind. Uh, before I learned to fly myself, I'd flown over 400 hours as a passenger to my pilot husband in a fixed-wing microlight, having adventures traveling to many places like the, uh, the Scilly Isles. <laughs> That's silly. Or did she mean Sicily? I don't know. No, the Silly Isles. Oh, I've never heard of that. Okay, well, because you're not silly. I they is it a funny place to go? Oh uh, no. Okay, that's true. Um, but, but, but oh, that next, next one, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at Steph, and she just had this grin, and I'm thinking, okay, why is she grinning like that? I know why. It's because you're, you're trying to say Carnarvon. Carnarvon. Oh, well done. Thank you. I couldn't have done it if I hadn't heard you say it. Uh, Isle of <laughs> Wight. I got that one. Not so much, Nick. Yeah. Sorry, Shut sorry. up, Fred. Stop. <laughs> okay. Isle of Wight, France, and Belgium for our base in eastern England. For me, the highlight was a summer trip to Oban. Is that right? Oban. 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 In western Scotland, flying along. Oh, God. Watch. I should have <laughs> let somebody else read this. Loch and Ben Nevis. You keep going. 
in the gorgeous afternoon light, and then across to uh, stunning Glen Forser on the Isle of Mull, an iconic destination for microlighters. Being based in Scotland, Thomas has the uh, option of many beautiful uh, microlight destinations, which, of course, can use smaller airstrips than larger aircraft. Many microlight pilots are members of clubs which have frequent flyouts to other destinations where new pilots can tag along and gain confidence at their own pace. Well, I guess if they're tagging along, they have to keep at the paces of, of everyone else, otherwise you'll be left behind, but we, we understand what you mean. I'll encourage Thomas to visit a couple of clubs, if he can, to find out what they do and what options there are to join a syndicate, which is a very cost-effective way to fly. I can go on for hours about the different types of microlights, the, the definitions, etc., uh, but you can find out all about it uh, from the brilliant guide on the BMAA, British Microlight Aircraft Association website. Here is the link, which Jeff will put in the show notes. Uh, good luck, Thomas. I hope you find a type of flying that you truly enjoy. Enjoy, sorry. Cheers, y'all. Proud microlight pilot, Claire. Thank you, Claire. Brilliant. Very cool. So, awesome. yes, again, congratulations on the microlight pilot's license, Claire. I noticed and Claire has put Charlie Alpha. What does she think were the opposing did, did bases? Did she also send in the exact same feedback to opposing bases? Uh, <laughs> oh, she may have. Yeah. She's a two-timer, is that what you're saying? So, cheap, Claire. <laughs> That's all right. I want to hear them try and pronounce those Scottish town names. Oh, they can have fun with Good that. Oh, that's uh, well. That's cool. That's what's great about this community. We have people listening, and and while they're listening to somebody else's feedback, they're going, "Oh, I have some information that I can contribute to this whole thing," and that's awesome. Yeah. I think. Actually, I was listening to uh, a uh, an AG trying to pronounce while while something happens, and was calling it Willie. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. seriously? Well, I think he said. Will as opposed to I thought. I thought to be in the Air Force, even the Guard or Reserve, you have to know how to uh, read and speak English. Don't worry, I send in some feedback. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Ag. Yeah. Or as I call you, Ag. (laughs) Um. uh, Let's see. You know what? It's that time. Yay! It's that time where. Each week we play this thing called the Old Pilot's Plain Tales, and this one I haven't had a chance to listen to yet, uh, so we're going to all listen to it together, and it is entitled RAF Form 414, Volume 4. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 4. After the last tale, we left our young RAF pilot wiping the foam of a quart of beer from his lips and receiving his treasured 43 Squadron crest from the squadron commander to wear in his flying suit for the very first time. He was now operational on the F-4 Phantom and ready to start working as a fully paid up fighter pilot. You might think that now, officially able to go to war, that his training might have finished, but far from it. In a peacetime air force, every mission, every minute of every day was usually spent training in one form or another. 
So it was, a few days later, on the 7th of December 1978, exactly 41 years ago, I had been out with my usual navigator practicing night intercepts. Scotland often suffered the worst of the storms that came over the Atlantic to pound the United Kingdom in winter, and this one had been no exception. Tony and I had been out over the North Sea, attacking and, in turn, being attacked by another phantom. Now, as we recovered back towards RAF Lucas, we got the word that the weather was pretty wild. It was wet, as passing heavy showers went through, but the main problem was the wind. On a wet runway, the F4 had a 20-knot crosswind limit, and with a good 35 knots across, it would have been marginal had the runway been dry. The only option, really, was to divert, but my backseater wasn't new to this sort of thing. Why don't we put it into the wire, he asked. The Phantom had first been created for the US Navy. It was primarily a carrier aircraft and was an excellent platform to bring down onto the pitching deck of an aircraft carrier. Its hook was suitably manly, solid and stable, and as thick as my thigh. It very rarely skipped an arrestor wire. Most military airfields, certainly RAF ones, have arrestor wires fitted to the end of their main runways, and almost all fast jets are equipped with a hook. But, uh, I replied to Tony, I've never done that before. It was true. Doing a wire engagement was normally a last-ditch way of stopping from going off the end of the runway, and nobody had to teach you that. You just put the hook down and waited. Tony was suggesting that we do an approach-end engagement, as you might do if you were landing on the deck of a carrier. Now, I don't want to suggest that what we were considering was as testing as finding the three-wire on a moving aircraft carrier. It certainly wasn't, but it was giving me pause for thought. Tony was all for it, and since he was senior enough, he said, You'll be fine. I'll authorise you. In truth, I think he was just dreading the hassle of a diversion. We let Lucas know what we intended and entered the instrument pattern. The cloud base was down to about 500 feet and they brought us round for a GCA, a ground-controlled approach. In the darkened radar room, the GCA controller was gazing at her two scopes, one showing our position relative to the runway centerline and the other one to the glide path. In a rotatable building near the centre of the airfield were the radar antennas, one scanning back and forth and the other up and down. They only needed to be short range but were very accurate and had a fast scan rate. The whole building could be turned to line up with any of the four runway approaches. I ran through our landing checks. Speed brakes in but out for a flooded or slushy runway. Landing gear down below 250 knots. Fuel check contents and calculate on speed. We landed at 19 units angle of attack, but always had a landing speed calculated to check it against. Flaps down below 210 knots. Hook as required. 
but the first time in anger I reached for the hook lever and dropped it downwards. Harness tight and locked, hydraulics all 3000 plus or minus 250 psi, Eddie skid on, captured out, radar, standby and stowed. As our controller lined us up with the runway, we heard the familiar, do not reply to further transmissions, you're approaching the glide path. Begin your descent now for a three degree glide path, you're nine miles from touchdown. Turn left 5 degrees, heading 080. You're drifting right of the centre line. Maintain your rate of descent. I set the big fighter into an 800 feet a minute rate of descent and concentrated on maintaining my speed, heading and descent rate as we were buffeted by the strong winds. Turn left a further 2 degrees, heading 078. We now had 12 degrees of drift and reduce your descent rate, you're slightly below the glide path. So the patter continued, only interrupted once we were given a landing clearance and replied that our gear was down. It was always a comforting way to come down in bad weather. Our controllers were good, and they looked after us. If it was particularly bad, we got the gruff but fatherly voice of the SATCO, our senior controller, and he somehow transmitted calm reassurance along with his guidance. The landing light in the nosewheel door was bouncing white glare from the clouds, but my head was down, concentrating. As we came out from the ragged base of the cloud, the glare disappeared and I looked for the runway lights. They appeared well to the right, but I resisted the urge to turn and centre them up, as I knew that... In the strong crosswind, we needed the drift to stay lined up. The vases, visual slope indicators, were a comfortable red-white, showing that we were still on a good glide path, and all I had to do now was plant my mighty machine firmly onto the middle of the runway. What happened next is still a bit of a blur. I wasn't sure what was supposed to happen, but I certainly didn't expect to be plucked from mid-air and thrown down onto the runway like half a ton of bricks. We slammed into the concrete, and in only a few seconds came from about 170 miles an hour to a grinding halt. I extracted my bruised face from the gun sight and realised why the landing checklist said harness tight and locked. The locked bit I usually ignored since I liked to be able to twist round in my seat and a normal landing was pretty gentlemanly compared to this. The RAG team extracted us from the cable and gave us the signal to taxi clear, which I did whilst tidying the aircraft up. In the subsequent debrief I discovered what the problem had been. Very conscious of not dragging the hook through the approach lights, I imagined it would hang quite a long way below the aircraft, not in fact the case. I made sure that I didn't drop below the glide slope when we came visual. Ah, said one of the more experienced pilots. On zero nine, the wire's a bit short of the instrument touchdown point, so it's best to put it down on the numbers. A lesson learned and no damage done. The RAF rotary hydraulic arrest gear is considerably more forgiving than the naval version. We flew up until the 21st of December 
and then, with Christmas approaching, the flying petered out as everyone got ready for the holidays. We threw a crew room party for the other sections on the station that supported us so well. The admin wallers and bean counters from headquarters, which we named Handbrake House, our very much loved air traffic controllers and the many others who helped us out during the year. As usual, we sent a Christmas hamper out to the lighthouse keepers on Bell Rock. This ancient reef lay ten miles out to sea on the centre line of the runway, runway 27, a most convenient position and a great marker to use when bringing in a formation for a run and break into the circuit. One would have thought it had been put there especially for our use, but according to legend, the abbot of Arbroath first installed a bell there to warn mariners in the 14th century, only to have it stolen by Dutch pirates. The rock was the scene of many shipwrecks, as it lies just below the surface of the sea for all but a few hours at low tide. Eventually, the fine Scottish engineer Robert Stevenson proposed the construction of a lighthouse on the reef in 1799, and in 1810 it had been completed, becoming the tallest offshore lighthouse in the world. It was built to such a high standard that it has not been replaced or adapted in the 209 years since. It was, however, automated in 1988, and the keepers were no longer required. I always wanted to meet some of them to ask if they minded the very low-level flypasts, usually in full reheat, that they were subjected to many times a day as we recovered from our missions over the North Sea. I suspect they loved them, but might have been just a touch deaf as a result. The new year started with some good weather, so we headed out over central and north Scotland to conduct low-level overland intercepts and combat. The snow was lying thick on the ground, and the stark granite that formed the highlands had been covered by a blanket of white camouflage. Our usual landmarks, particularly the lochs, had frozen and then been covered by snow so they disappeared from view. We took care when the sky was overcast as the white ground blended in with it and it became easy to become disorientated. Care was taken to bug the radult at a sensible height so that, with the absence of visual cues, we didn't drift too low. Then, as February 1978 came round, excitement built as we were to host a visit by the United States Air Force 527th Aggressor Squadron. I had barely 200 hours in the Phantom, and I was going to fight some of the most experienced and capable fighter pilots in the world. It was very exciting. They brought a handful of their F-5Es up from Alconbury, where they were based, and when they landed we crowded around, admiring their exotic paint jobs, which mimicked Soviet camouflage and their aircraft numbers. The aggressors' helmets sported Russian red stars, and they were masters of their trade but my apprehension at facing them soon disappeared and when we got our first of many briefings. The aggressors weren't there to prove their superiority at air combat. 
They were instructors in Soviet tactics, and they were there to make us better at facing our expected foe. TB led me out for a 1v1 combat mission, and from the moment we left the ground, the lessons began. He taught me something that stuck with me throughout my military career. Never waste a moment. As we transited out to the play area, we practiced a continual sequence of gentle exercises. We didn't want to waste too much fuel to improve our combat skills. We practiced vector rolls around each other, where we barrel rolled around in a continuous spiral, keeping our lift vectors pointed at the other aircraft. We spent time gun-stracking each other's in a weave with unexpected reversals thrown in so that we could improve our reaction time and get the gun sight back on as soon as we could. We did slow speed manoeuvres to demonstrate that slowing to fight at the speed of a MiG-21, which was often the aircraft they mimicked, was not good for a Phantom. Whilst I struggled to stay flying, TB flew circles round me. These guys were really at the top of the tree and it was a pleasure to listen to them talk and then practice the lessons in the air. The F-5 was hard to fight, but the hardest thing was to keep sight of it. As they turned in to fight us, we could easily see the plan form of the little fighter, but then they pointed their needle noses straight at us and in a blink they disappeared. It was like they employed a cloaking device and the next thing I heard was my nav screaming at me to do a missile or guns break as they crept up behind. I fought Kit in a 1v1 and then two of us took on Mark and finally two of us ganged up on their boss, Lieutenant Colonel Leeson as well. It was probably the most informative week I've ever had in my training. The next month saw me down at Bimbrook, fighting the lightnings of 11 Squadron. Even having transited half the country, I still had more time to play than the fabled rocket ship. With our amazing radar and missile capabilities, the lightning wasn't really much of a test, even for the 43 Squadron junior pilot, but there was no doubting the lightning pilot's skill at keeping up with that remarkable aircraft as well as working the radar and keeping a close eye on the rapidly diminishing fuel load. Later in the month, I was targeting Buccaneers, escorted by F-15s, and a formation of 14 Squadron Jaguars. I always loved fighting the Jags, and claimed six of them. In the meantime, my life as the Squadron Junior Pilot had its ups and downs. Had I been the Junior Navigator... I would have had the pleasure of looking after the squadron mascot, a fighting cockerel called Macduff. He was a vicious beast, but I would have preferred that job, despite the cuts and scratches he inflicted, to the one traditionally done by the junior pilot. I was the coffee bar officer. My main duty was to spend hours transcribing the squadron's flying hours onto a claim form and then calculating how much money each and every flight was worth in rations. Once this was done, I had to put an order into the NAFI for food and drinks to stock the coffee bar and try to keep everyone happy. 
you think it's hard to keep an aircraft full of passengers happy, it's child's play when compared to a bunch of whinging fighter pilots and grumpy navigators. But something was about to happen that would take my mind off the world of niff-naff and trivia. We were about to deploy to Cyprus, the land of milk and honey, cochineli and kebabs. But more of that another time. What a tease. <laughs> Another great plane tale by the old pilot. Sniff-niff? What's sniff-niff? I have no so, idea. The, the okay. last two or three things you said in the end of that sentence, I, I don't yeah. know. Maybe he can bring himself uh, to join <laughs> us in the stream. He's talking. I, to no one. I know he's talking on it, but you got to click. There you go. And then I'm I can just show you it's something very <laughs> tedious. Nip uh, trivia. Yeah, yeah, that'll um, yeah, that that'll be something paperwork related usually. Gotcha. Yes, oh. Cyprus, the wonderful Cyprus. Uh, it back, certainly back in the seventies, it was a place to behold, and we loved it there. And uh, interestingly, no, now I understand why you asked us about the arresting cables at these joint use bases yes it brought me brought it to mind uh, because of course uh, we had ours raised all the time it, they they weren't on the mechanical devices that some ex bases have where they can lay the cable on the ground and then a series of uh, sort of bow-shaped uh, metal hoops, raise it uh, on the press of a button so that uh, it can be engaged. Um, so on our base, uh, we didn't have that sophistication. The cable was up all the time. It was held aloft by large um, rubber disks, uh, and it took some time. If they wanted to de-rig it, they had to get a bunch of guys out there, to, and it's a heavy old cable, to uh, detension it and then move all these discs to one side, lay the cable flat. Uh, so you had to be very careful if you were going to trample it and the aircraft not cleared um, because uh, it's very easy for the cable to catch onto your undercarriage and whip your gear off if you're not careful. Yeah, Sounds that's no good. painful. Yeah, <laughs> and expensive. <laughs> very. Uh, the joint, embarrassing. The yes. joint use bases that we have those um, arresting cables, they have this system where the some plate, like a plate opens up and it's the width of the uh, runway and the cable actually drops below the runway surface. And Ooh, then the, oh, that's yeah, clever. Fancy. Very I, fancy, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we call those discs uh, rubber donuts. I don't know why. They look like a donut, I guess. Oh, yes, I expect so. Except for that you probably shouldn't eat them. Uh, you could um, try if you want to. You could. And just, uh, I don't know if you, I'm sorry, Steph, I oh, I talked right over no, you. No, it's fine. I just, I wasn't saying anything important. Uh, I'm, I am I never do either. Okay. <laughs> I just, you know, less nutritious than actual donuts, oh, yeah. which are not nutritious really to begin with. What? Sorry? They're not? Oh. Sorry. Um, I don't know if you mentioned it uh, at the beginning of this installment uh, nick uh, did you cover uh, for those who are new listeners they may not know what an raf form 414 is uh no i uh i didn't actually I, okay it, i can do it now please uh, do 
if you uh, if you get issued with a logbook because you're a pilot on the front, it'll say RAF form as every document, uh, booklet, everything that the RAF uh, printed uh, has a form number and uh, an RAF pilot's logbook at RAF form four one four. Okay. There you go. Ah, I hope is that just me? Uh, I'm, he was kind of skyping out a little bit. Just you. Ah, shoot. Sorry. I have no understanding. I why. understood what the just is fine. For. Yeah. Okay. All good. I don't know why my bandwidth would be suffering because I'm the only one using it in the house. Oh well. Um, where do we leave off on our number four? Four. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, Richard Nash sent us this from his iPad. Um, it was a uh, tweet by Andrew Hodgson, and let me see. I'm trying to remember exactly. This was the like Cessna 150 or 172, I think, wasn't it? That um, was kind of the well, not kind of a very unstabilized appearing approach. Oh yes, well yes. below minimums. Yeah, uh, angled off to the left of the runway in what looked like a and then they, hard descent. And then they cheered on the ground. Yeah, and not because they were relieved to have made it. (laughs) Well, so uh, you know what I actually I have to admit when I when I watched this I thought well that's a simulator I mean it didn't even it didn't look real to me but then uh, the more I read some of these comments the more I realized no that that this is not a simulator it really is this guy and I guess he has kind of a reputation for this sort of thing on YouTube and uh, and I watched the. the higher res uh, version of it and an uncut version of it. And it's, it certainly is not fake. It is a really inappropriate way to operate an airplane, basically. Yeah. And being so. encouraged by his passenger who thought it was marvelous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so no, basically what? something the rest of us looked at and went, <gasps> yeah. So yeah. I, I was trying to list all the things he did wrong. I mean, he busted his minimum. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is such a no-no. I mean, that mm-hmm. is probably the first lesson you ever get when you're doing your instrument flying. Your minimum is absolutely sacrosanct. You can't Let's see the check damn runway. tail right there. Just Absolutely. If you can't see the uh, visual cues at your minima, you go around. Uh, and he wasn't stabilized by the looks of it because he was well displaced from uh, the runway. Yeah. Uh, so not on the center line. Uh, and uh, he must have had a pretty excessive rate of descent because um, the, the man he had to flare to level the airplane out was looked quite, you know, quite a lot, quite excessive. So I don't know, uh, just a very bad example to set to anybody. And guess what kind of airplane that was? Was it not like a Cessna or something? I don't actually have Cessna, no idea. It was a Cessna four fourteen. What? Twin, yeah. What? Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I That's... when I was watching uh, some of the videos in his channel, then I realized that that was the airplane oh <laughs> we were looking at from that the inside. Makes it so much worse. I know it does. Really, it's much higher. Performance. It's all terrible. That's not. Let's, I know let's it's just not good there, but... at all. Yeah. So that's what we think about that, Richard. Not good. Not good thoughts about that. And well, uh, make me feel very comfortable. Should have gone around. Huh? Yes. Should have yes. gone around. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do we need to play the? Uh, yes, yeah. you, we do. You can always go around. Go around. Mm. If it don't look right, 
coming down. Come on, everybody. Sing along. (laughs) I know those listening to it right now are singing along, though. Go around. All right. It's always good to play that at least once per show. And uh, thanks, Richard, for um, pointing this uh, not-so-good event out to us. Okay. Uh, Five. Texas Charlie. Howdy, all. In the attached article, Airbus seems to be saying that technology will overcome wake turbulence so that a tailgating plane, that's in quotes, tailgating, could ride another's updraft in order to save fuel. Even with advanced computer-aided flight controls, I would think that wake surfing behind another airplane would at least be airsick-inducing bumpy and maybe even highly inadvisable in the most catastrophic of ways. But what do you know? I'm not an aerospace engineer. Anyway, there's a link to the article from Fox Business, and I have to be truthful here. I didn't actually read this. So did you, any of you get a chance to look at yeah, this? Yeah, I took a look at it. Nope. Okay. Um, so I don't, I mean, I, I understand the, the, the physics involved and the, you know, like the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not the practical, but the theoretical, economic? theoretical, yeah, the theoretical, uh, idea behind Airplanes flying closely enough to benefit from the uh, wake of the, an airplane in front of them, like the uh, uh, like a lot of birds do when they're flying in formations, like when uh, ducks and geese are, or like race car drivers. Or yeah, there's you know why people watch races though? To see the crashes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. That's not actually true. I, no, I think I, Nick and I watch racing uh, yeah, because not nearly the, enough crashes. I know you're they need to do something to make more crashes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Demolition Derby guaranteed <laughs> crashes. That's what we need, yeah. <laughs> but I, again, I, I really can't say too much because I didn't actually read this. But uh, what do you think? What's your uh, what's your take there, Nick? Uh, th- this is a theoretical um, concept. And, uh, you know, the fact that people are thinking about such things make me go, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm pleased that uh, we're looking to adapt uh, the industry and look at technology where we might be able to take advantage of this. But it's a bit like the technology that we've seen in motor cars, where you link up uh, 20 cars and they all go down the road with like five feet between them, all computer controlled, following the guy in front. Uh, and as such, you reduce the drag in your car, increase the fuel consumption, and you're effectively not driving it. it it's a concept, but it, I don't think it's going to happen, not anytime soon, that's for sure. Um, as regards the specific comments that uh, Texas Charlie makes, um, yeah, it, it will be obviously done uh, computerized and using the autopilot. Um, it won't be... Uh, in the wake turbulence of the aircraft ahead, it'll be outside of that, and it takes advantage of the um, the bow wave, as it were, that uh, those uh, vortices and the actual passing of the aircraft create, and so it will be uh, a short distance away from potential turbulence from uh, wake. But I think the practicalities of arranging an aircraft to be flying what is effectively in close formation with another aircraft, uh, certainly of airliner size. Um, really, um, the only aircraft that's going to benefit is the ones following, not the one in the front. He's going to yeah. 
have a pretty horrendous fuel consumption compared with the others. Um, so I'm going, really, who's going to do this? No, you're going to have to fly around in fleets. Who's going to nominate who's in front? Which airline's going to suck it up and have the extra fuel burn? Is it ever going to work? What happens if you've got different destinations? Nah, uh, I just think it's a concept paper someone yeah. picked up on and they think well this would be interesting perhaps it'll happen one day can you imagine the faa or the or iasa like uh, changing regulations to allow airplanes to be that close to each other uh, ever <laughs> I don't, well i just not really it. no oh. i mean you do get clearances for aircraft to fly in close formation even airlines yeah. they do it relatively frequently you've seen uh, certainly all the airbus and the boeing fleets yeah. do pr shots all lined up so you can get permissions to do this, but to do it on regular flights uh, with autopilots, with uh, your standard pilots, not specially trained, uh, no, I don't think it's going to happen. Certainly not in my lifetime. Yeah, I don't see it ever happening, actually. All right. Well, thank you, Texas Charlie, for uh, pointing us to that article. Uh, you know, was it the last episode or the episode before that we had that nice feedback from Nir in? Uh, Israel? Yes. And we were having trouble uh, pronouncing. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's H-A-Z-E-R-I-M. Well, he sent us um, some follow-up feedback. He said the... Okay, so he said it's pronounced like... Ha is pronounced like ya in... No. No, ha. Ha. Okay, well, you could have just said ha. That, see, that makes it worse Javier. for me by saying it's pronounced like ya. J A N J A V I E R. Well, there's a lot of different ways to pronounce that. J A depending on. <laughs> okay. We need the just English say, phonetics here. Not it's pronounced the... like ha. Okay, I get that. Spanish. And then the Z is pronounced T S in the word it's. Okay. So, go ahead. Hatsarim. Hatsarim. Okay. Air Force bases. That's probably still wrong. Sorry. Sounds pretty good to me. Just outside of the city of Beersheba or Beersheba. I like beer, the beer Sheba. Uh, I want some more beer, please. Sheba. Sheba. Hey, she, what, what's, what's the waitress's name again? Sheba. <laughs> okay, I'll have another beer, Sheba. Sheba, In more beer. Southern Israel. Uh, since you had trouble pronouncing the name, I hope this helps. So, okay. Um, I guess it helped a little bit. Thank you, Nir. I tell you what would have helped a lot more, and that would have been some audio feedback. Exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> so try again, old chap. That would be yeah. appreciated. We'd love to hear your voice. Put my put my pronunciation to shame there. My, Please do. My Hebrew's not good. Sorry. No. No. I've heard her try to speak it, and it's not it's not pretty. What have I ever tried to speak Hebrew? I'm just kidding. I don't know. I'm <laughs> okay. making that up. I, you know, I wouldn't put it past me. For entertainment. Yeah, that one time, you know, remember when you had like yeah. two cases of beer? Yeah, wow. That sounds you were about speaking right. in tongues. Mm -hmm. uh, seven. Paul, uh, I was just listening to episode 402, which was our last one. Hey, talk about timely feedback, huh? Uh, and wanted to respond to a question that Captain Dana had posed. This was in regard to the story about the Turkish airline that had experienced a collapsed nose gear after its second landing attempt in Odessa, Ukraine. The story mentioned that Mode S data had indicated that the aircraft had contacted the runway on its first attempt at landing. Captain Dana had questioned how Mode S data could be used to make this determination. One of the parameters that can be transmitted by Mode S is the activation of the nose gear squat switch. My guess is that this was what the article was referring to. I know that the alt uh, altitude is a barometric altitude and is typically reported in increments of 25 feet 
so it would not be accurate enough to determine that the aircraft had contacted the runway. Hope this was helpful. Uh, thanks always for a wonderful and entertaining podcast. Sincerely, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, What Paul. do you think, Dana? Yeah. Uh, I actually responded to him uh, oh. via a, a response, and I thanked him very much for that information I wasn't aware of. So, yeah. Can I, I, can I just raise a, a flag here, please? Oh, yes. Must you? Yeah. You know, it's going to generate more feedback, but go ahead. <laughs> squat, switch, squat switches are usually yeah. on the main gear, not the nose gear. That may oh. be a squat switch on the nose gear on some aircraft, but not that I've generally uh, heard of. We, it's usually on we, the main gear. We have a switch. It's not called, we don't necessarily call it a squat switch. We call it a, um, a, know, wow. a, ground, a ground to air yeah. Yeah. Um, link. Uh, wait, wait, no, ground to air shift. Now I can't think of the actual name it's of the, the ground thing. Air, sh- air, air uh, shift link. Okay, is, is that me? like having a shift on? <laughs> you your had it close. You had it very close. But yes, it's, it basically looks yeah. like a, a piston with a spring on it, and that is on the nose gear on the Mad Dog. That is what triggers the airplane. I hope it's nice and strong. You you don't want to be piston broke. <laughs> okay. Uh, wow, he's so, full of he's full of those today. Yeah, yeah. Folks? Well, he's full of something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. I'm I'm going to say uh, probably a weight on wheel switch uh, in the on the main gear is uh, what we need, not a nose gear. But don't worry about it; that's fine. Yeah, I don't know. And how many of the airplanes have their modes actually, you know, sending that kind of data? I don't know. I'll do. Uh, oh, okay. They don't send it. But they they have the capability. It depends how you set the pins to, oh, okay. uh, and how much air traffic actually want to receive. So you can adjust it to each individual aircraft, depending on what the capabilities of the aircraft are, how many sensors it's got. And, of course, air traffic don't uh, want half of this stuff, so they don't actually um, display it to the air traffickers. Okay, gotcha. Well, very good. Well, uh, thank you, Paul, for that information. Uh, Eight Christian um, sent this in, Christian Base from Richmond Hill. Oh, that's this a big the- condom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, moving on. Um, so he Sorry. says he, ha- he has a picture How of something. How long were you waiting to say that during the show? I just oh. thought of it. I'm sorry. I just looked at it. Wow. Well. Um, he means a condominium. There's some uh, buildings that we're looking at in our, uh, in our picture here. Um, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> sorry. Um, and, uh, uh, family show. Yeah. Uh, I think now i got to find that one. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. So the only comment that Christian makes after he sends us this, this link is, it wasn't even from a mad dog. <laughs> That's all it deserves. That was pretty muted. Yes. <laughs> I think that was on purpose. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the FAA is invis- investigating after an evacuation uh, slide fell off a plane and landed in a Milton backyard on Sunday. The pilot of Delta Airlines Flight 405 from Paris, France, reported a loud noise as the plane approached Boston Logan International Airport around noon. Workers discovered that the right rear slide was missing after the plane had landed safely. Milton police later alerted the FAA that the the slide had been found in a resident's backyard, and it looked strangely very much like a large... Oh, never mind. No, that was not in the... (laughs) Love silver. And no injuries or damage to the property were reported, officials said. Uh, Delta Airlines said in a statement that maintenance crews were inspecting the plane. 
Delta is investigating an inflatable overwing slide that was retrieved following the aircraft's landing into Bogan. Uh, Bogans. <laughs> That's a con- I, I put two words together there. Boston, Logan, Bogan, I call it. Airport, the statement said. The flight landed without incident and taxied to the gate under its own power. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, not? you know, after the inflatable overwing slide departs company of the aircraft, could it really taxi under its own power? I mean, it's up for debate. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it could. Yeah, well, actually, yes. yeah, easier. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people were like saying, well, how could that? Because aren't those things like on the inside of the airplane and you have to open the door for the thing to come out? No. Is it is it the 7.5 and the 7.6 uh, that bo- have uh, these little access panels um, just, uh, I think, above the wing route uh, that will open and the slide will come out and it assists people from... Uh, evacuating from the airplane over the wing, if I'm not mistaken. Anybody want to help me on that one? No, yeah. well, there, depends there on the numbers. aircraft type. No. Yeah, there are yeah. a number of slides which uh, come out from the fuselage. Uh, some are yeah. mounted in the wing area, uh, and a lot of them are actually not part of the door mechanism. They're underneath the door mm-hmm. on the fuselage behind a panel. So uh, when you open the door, uh, it pulls the um, firing handle and the slide inflates and pushes this panel out of the way, mm. and uh, it bursts out. So it's, you don't actually need to open the door for it to happen. All that happen, needs to happen is this panel needs to come loose, uh, and then the slide can fall out. It shouldn't usually separate. We had a 7.4 that had one deploy in flight, and uh, it flapped around for a while before it fell off, but eventually the air loads on it ripped it free. So that's what tends hmm. to happen. Interesting. So uh, thank you, Christian, for that. Uh, it's not the first time that we've heard of something like this happening on a Boeing 7.5 or 7.6. Maybe it's just the 7.6. I don't know. Um, Greg asks, Greg uh, from the Very Large Donkey Fan Company in Lexington. I just watched an old video. Uh, He gives us a link to a YouTube video from January 2015 of Delta 95, which is a 777 from Atlanta to Narita, taking off from Atlanta and subsequently declaring an emergency and returning to the airfield. In the video, you can see them dumping fuel before landing. I know that there are no oceans that close to Atlanta airport. Yeah, not very close at all. So I'm curious, what happens to the fuel that is dumped when flying that low over land? Anybody want to help Greg out with where the fuel goes? Evaporation? I think so. Yeah, it gets absorbed by the atmosphere. So 5,000 feet is usually the advised minimum to allow the fuel to evaporate before it uh, gets down to ground level. So you shouldn't notice the thing. It just disappears into the atmosphere. But, of course, uh, if you're in dire need of reducing your weight and you're lower than that you just dump anyway and people get a a light kerosene shower and you just hope that you're not in your backyard barbecuing yeah if you had that fire going behind you it could get quite exciting (laughs) (laughs) i think you burnt the steak again woof and that's not the dog oh and i'm uh, yeah bam oh wait i have one of these All right. Item 10. Andreas. On a recent episode when relating an incident, you were wondering why the airline would operate an empty flight. We were talking about that. um, uh, What airline was that again that uh, had the uh, SkyWest, I think? 
Yeah, it was a they regional. The regional jet regional. that, uh, mm-hmm. um, no, maybe not Skywest. They don't fly that airplane. What Republic, I think. Anyway, um, the pilot reported the yes, number of people on board as six on a busy route with JFK as one end point, if I remember well. Um, I think it was actually going to LaGuardia, but never mind. One of the New York airports. Might slots Atlanta be the reason? LaGuardia, I think, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Sorry. Um, oh, am I? Uh, I'm probably breaking up. You guys aren't hearing what I'm saying? No, I heard Loud what you're clear. saying. I was oh, just okay. slow. Okay, because uh, yours uh, coming into me is kind of kind of not great. Again, not your fault, my fault. Um, so, uh, again, um, might slots be the reason? Quoting from Wikipedia, if an airline does not use an allocation of slots, typically 80% usage over six months, it can lose those rights. Airlines may operate ghost or empty flights to preserve slot allocations. So, you know, that very well could be. Maybe the company, even though they know that uh, that's not going to be a a profit-making flight with only a few passengers on board, they have to operate a certain number or percentage to make sure that they continue to keep that route authority. That's a something I had not considered. That's a valid yeah, point. It, I agree. It, it, yeah. The rules make uh, you know, any effort to... Uh, be green, a bit of a joke, because if you're having to fly empty aircraft around just to maintain possession of that slot, you think to yourself, well, that's just a huge waste of fuel and just drilling holes in the air. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is. Definitely not going Such green. is life not, and business, though. Not. You're not going, going green. green. We're nailing him. We're hitting him. I hope Pip is happy. Uh, Let's see. Steve writes, um, new taxi system. Uh, I think we talked about this on a previous episode where they were installing a uh, underground uh, electrical tug system. And part of the article was uh, talking about the person that they had nominated to, you know, be ahead of this project. And um, the, uh, let's see. And so the company hired the director of the Oklahoma Department of Aviation as its new CEO. Shortly thereafter, the Oklahoma Department of Aviation approved the project. Wait a minute, where was the correction here? The guy was a director of a Department of Aeronautics, which is entirely independent of the Department of Aviation. Still, the subterranean electric tug is a good enough story, I think. Yeah, it was, Steve. Thank you. Um, Perhaps he had hoped to get this to us before we actually covered it on yeah. I, I think show. we generally poo-pooed it, though, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Just, it has nothing to do with the person uh, in in charge of the project. It was more like, oh, we're not the really The idea seeing... itself. Yeah. 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 The and expense. The, and the, the expense. And then, um, I don't know if we talked about it. I think we did. Uh, the fact that, you know, they were thinking, well, we can t- tow these airplanes to the end of the runway and then they can just start up and go and then we're so yeah but uh especially the newer generation engines out there they take a long time to start and they take a long time to warm up to a certain point before you want to apply takeoff thrust to them so well it's like nick said earlier it's nice that people are trying to brainstorm and think of ways to make things more environmentally friendly and efficient and green but right did we, we did cover this, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, okay. absolutely. Now I'm starting to doubt myself, thinking no, maybe not. I read no, it no. and we didn't talk about it. Okay. But I didn't see that picture you've got there of this little thing, which is like a little underground mole 
mm-hmm. uh, dragging the airplane along. But uh, yeah, I can imagine it being a bit like a ski lift. You know, you have to push back and then wait for the next one to come along, and there's a big kadoing as you <laughs> <laughs> get sit down on it. it. Yes, <laughs> heaved off. And everyone like an old cable car. Yeah, or something. exactly. Right. You're lucky that everyone spills their champagne. Uh, the height will be just off on it. You know, right. hit at the wrong spot and yeah, lose right. a ski. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Then you'll fall off. And the airplane will tip over, and everyone exactly. will laugh. <laughs> then everyone will be stuck there. It'll, it'll shut down for like five minutes. And everyone's like, "Ah, oh, is the worst." Yeah, it's right. So cold yeah. outside. Even, even worse might be chattery breaks. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> all right moving on 12 robert um did prince philip really try to fly his plane to the moon i don't know happy holidays to the crew i'm still enjoying the crown now in season three on netflix and i watched the lunar landing episode again this is robert from mayretta uh, in a scene in the crown we're given insight into the turmoil felt by prince philip after he does something rather drastic the, uh, the episode begins with the global milestone of the first humans landing on the moon, and Philip is noticeably enthralled. The episode focuses largely on the Duke of Edinburgh's reluctance in accepting that he ga- gave up a life outside of being a royal, which had since confined his dreams and aspirations of being a pilot. Then, in a scene following the moon landing, Philip is seen flying one of his planes alongside an assistant. Spotting the distant moon, Philip decides to take the controls into his own hands, and literally propels the plane towards it. The plane appeared to be a corporate jet of some sort, and in the middle of the drama, he allegedly was able to fly up to almost 49,000 feet. Eventually, Philip levels the plane, saying, Look, we've also lived just for a minute. Hmm. Okay. Um, According to online commentary, there isn't any real-life evidence or indication that Philip took such an extreme measure to live. So it's likely that this was a slight exaggeration on the show's part. Oh, come on. They never exaggerate in these things. <laughs> come it's on. Basically a documentary, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> no. That being said. It's actual footage. Uh, right. It's actual it really is. <laughs> Archived royal footage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's no denying Philip would have battled with the idea of never pursuing his dreams of flying, and this would likely have been exacerbated by with the moon landing. Wondering if you had heard of anything like this by chance. If not, either way, I highly recommend the show. And again, that was The Crown. And uh, yeah, so I think we basically poo-pooed this idea uh, a little bit, perhaps. I mean, Prince Philip was uh, well known as a very enthusiastic pilot, um, but he um, didn't command his own aircraft. Uh, He had a captain sitting beside him and he just um, handled it um, through the aircraft. But uh, I, I think Robert needs to uh, just bear in mind that that entire show has uh, no relationship to reality in any form or manner. What would you know about it? Oh, that's yeah. right. Exactly right. <laughs> hey, don't ruin it for us Americans, okay? We, we like to. Uh, we love it. Yeah, yeah exactly okay. right. Uh, it's not ruining it for me. I don't watch it. Do you watch the show? Yeah, I do. I've never heard of it. There you oh, okay. Yeah, same. I've never heard of it. I knew that somebody here does, and Nick, you said that you've seen it, right? Oh you yeah, absolutely. It. I think it's okay. Netflix or Netflix. Amazon, one it's of the Netflix. other Netflix. There you go. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, it's got some great role. actors in it. Does it? Yeah, it does. It's uh, it's it's well it's well produced. It's not mm-hmm. a cheap show by any means, but mm-hmm. it's it's a pure fiction. It's a it's a drama. I, loosely based around 
real things. And that's okay. I've had people, on. listeners, send feedback about it before asking about um, what was it the uh, the airplane that they used for um, something they flew to Africa or something like that. It was called the Atlanta. Um, oh yeah, the Atlantis Atlanta. Yeah, the yeah it was. They uh, I seem to was, remember something about that. That the crown was part of the uh, what spurred them to you know want to know more information about the the airplane and its name. Yes, I think they misnamed it in the computer-generated imagery. It was supposed to be like Arlanta or something like that. I don't know. Something. I forgot exactly what the deal was, but uh, yeah, they mis- misnamed it. Okay, uh, Rick um, writes, let's see, Rick uh, Kowalczyk. Kowalczyk? Um, it's been a, quite a while since my first feedback, like uh, six months. But not to worry, I've not missed a week of your great podcast. By the way, happy 400 and then some. Yay. Keeping things on the light side today with my feedback. No need to go down the road with anything dealing with the Macs or training or balloons. Just wondering what names or nicknames you have heard for specific aircraft as an industry or what Acme might call these aircraft. For example, here at Ajax Airlines, I've heard our Airbus 320 fleet called Fifi. I've heard that also. Uh, the 737 Guppy. Yep. We've heard that one. The 747-400 when we had them as the 400. And when, when I read that, I thought, well, at Acme, when we hear the 400, we're usually talking about the 767-400. Uh, but I've also heard them called the whale. Yeah. That's the, that's the nickname I hear most with the 74 is the whale. Um, the 787 is Sparky. That's the one I've not heard of. Due to its battery <laughs> issues early on. <laughs> yeah. what, are, what are you on? I'm awesome. on Sparky. Sparky. <laughs> I fly Sparky. Uh, our 7576 fleet have no nicknames or, and are just the 757767 or 756 for short. However, the 76400 is also called the 400, but don't tell the former 747 drivers that. And he laughs out loud. Also, as far as international flying goes, when we have the required third or fourth crew member, we refer to that position as the Bunky, and the official name, though, is International Relief Officer, or IRO. I've also heard a former airline called the IRO position as the Eater, (laughs) E-A-T-E-R. Yeah, that's all you do is eat. That's the reason why you're there. Um, so have you heard any of these nicknames before any nicknames for aircraft at Acme or Captain Nick's airline? Of course, we all know what the mad dog is. Not sure if there's a future plain tail idea here for Captain Nick, but it sounds interesting. Long live the mad dog. Thank you, Rick. Uh, how about, uh, at, uh, your former, uh, international airline, Nick, um, any no, not specific, really. never yeah. really picked up on any of those. Okay. Fluff. Um, uh, the fluff. Yeah. The fluff the, chat. And the Barbie the, uh, jet. What's the Barbie jet? Well, actually, I had was having this conversation last night. Uh, the Barbie jet was known as the CRJ-200. Uh, that was often referred to that airplane. But now I'm hearing that the A220 is now being referred to a by flight as the new Barbie jet. Mm. What's the For those who don't know, what's the fluff? It's a 737-200, or, or the short version uh, yeah. of the 7 The original. Fat, little, ugly blank. Yep, got it. <laughs> oh, that's why it's called fluffy, huh? I've also called it the fluff jet. Fluff. Yeah, <laughs> I've also heard the uh, that the seven three seven two hundred uh, referred to as the flying speed break because huh? it wasn't very fast at uh, all. Um, 
And of course, I call the 717 the puppy dog. The angry puppy. The angry uh, puppy. Angry puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. Mad dog and angry puppy. Mm-hmm. What a team. All right. Um, if any of you out there listening have any nicknames that you uh, that we didn't uh, come up with, uh, help us out. Send us some feedback. Is, uh, you, you noticed my restraint there? I, I, I did. I didn't call the bin liner the bin liner or the other name we have for it. But wait a minute. You just did. Oh, you, damn. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I see what you're trying to do there and what you did. And what's, what's the other name for it? <laughs> yeah, what's the other? Um, uh, that's a little bit dubious. I refer uh, you to the previous comment I made about the slide. It's worse than that. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Thank you very much. We'll have a footnote in the show notes for that one, I think. Uh, and I then wouldn't finally, define with you. Okay. Well, I'm just saying that. I'm not really going to do that. <laughs> Fair Wow, look at this. This is working out perfectly. Our producer just nailed it. She's getting nailed a better it. feel for how many we can do and such uh, for uh, feedback. And we're on our last item, unless I skipped one, which I, I do, do not on occasion. See any uh, skips? Uh, no. You didn't okay. miss any today. All, good. All right. So 14 from uh, John. Good afternoon from John in Duluth, Georgia. And congratulations on putting episode 400 into the can, uh, so to speak. No, not the circular one next to your desk. Uh, My comment has to do with your discussion of the recent ERJ-175 runaway trim emergency in Atlanta. Now I understand that this idea might be a bit problematic, but would there be any merit in having ATC controllers ride in the jump seat during simulator sessions so that they might better appreciate the work level in the cockpit, especially during an emergency? I appreciate and sympathize with the concern over an additional distraction while in the box, Perhaps this might be addressed by an agreement before the session that any observer who uh, would be required to remain absolutely silent during the entire session, saving their questions or comments until afterwards. Such agreement could also provide a one-strike-and-you're-out clause so that anyone creating a distraction would agree to leave if asked by either the crew or the simulator instructor. Uh, Again, I appreciate that this might create additional tension during a simulator session, but perhaps the benefit of controllers having a better understanding of what might be going on in the cockpit during an emergency would make it worthwhile. There are probably sound reasons why controllers and fire chiefs ask the questions they do while an an emergency is in progress. Like so many other things in this aviation thing that we love, the reasons may very well be written in blood. Perhaps the last thing that could be done would be a short post-ride conversation over Acme Coffee where the crew and controller could talk so that everyone comes to a better understanding of what is meant when someone says, don't call me, I'll call you back. I'm listening to more and more podcasts, and the Airline Pilot Guy continues to be the go-to program for the many long drives I take. Thank you so much for the work and love you put into this and for creating this remarkable community. Again, congratulations on episode 400, and I wish for you all blue skies and better than forecast tailwinds john very nice john thank you very much for the kind words uh, and congratulatory expression for 400 and more and so what do you all think about this idea i mean i i see some some positive uh aspects of uh having uh we do have a program uh that stopped for a while but now they resumed it and many of our air traffic controllers out there who have their own podcasts and others that listen to 
this show have talked about the, and I've, I don't know what the formal name of it is, but it's not unusual uh, uh, for us to have an air traffic controller on the jump seat every now and then just observing. But as you know, 99.9999% of the time, that flight's going to go off without a hitch. There's not going to be an emergency uh, situation. And so having them uh, ride in a, uh, in a simulator uh, where you are guaranteed to have things going wrong might be an interesting thing. What yeah, do y'all think? I, I absolutely agree. I think it would be uh, an awesome thing. I just don't know how realistic it would be to have uh, you know all the controllers come through and do observations. I don't think it would be a very big threat, per se, as he's indicating. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly would be a beneficial uh, event for uh, air traffic controllers in, in, in you know, our friends over at you know RH and AG have you know a unique perspective because they get to they've experienced this before. So uh, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what they have to say on that. And also, Brandon Gonzalez um, mm-hmm. podcasting on a plane, same thing. He's yeah. a pilot as well, yeah. uh, and that's that's what makes their shows <clears throat> I think so great is the fact that you're hearing mostly from a air traffic controller's perspective on things, but they also have the perspective of being pilots. And I'd be very interested to hear, interested to hear, uh, you know, for example, when I was meeting up with our HSA, we, we talked about some things that I wasn't, you know, as a pilot, I was not aware of, like their training requirements and what it's like to be, uh, to go through a checkout, uh, even after they've been checked out as a air traffic controller, then they have to go through another checkout at the facility that they're working. And I didn't know that. I didn't know how intense that was. And, and mm-hmm. through the conversation, I learned a lot just in that conversation. So I have a new appreciation. So that's kind of the same same deal here. And it's not a bad idea for us as pilots to even go in and, and observe uh, what air traffic control is doing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and on actually the last podcast, uh, not that I'm, I'm promoting them, but they did talk about that uh, in, in opposing basis and that, you know, there's, you know, a question that came up um, and it's not a bad idea to go to the facility that you, you know, like for us, Jeff, we were in and out of Atlanta all the time and we know how awesome of a job they do. Right. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a bad idea to go see how that all works uh, you know, yeah. and, and sit with somebody. And that, so, you know, the the complete opposite them coming to sit with us certainly uh you know they do it on a fairly regular basis as you mentioned come right our jump seat but to see what it's like to be through an actual emergency situation it'll probably be very eye-opening for them yeah it was uh speaking of that i I, it was about a year ago november of last year i think is when i did the uh atlanta airport tower um tour and uh got i learned a lot from that and it's i think We've talked about it many times on the show that whether it's the world of aviation and airline operations or uh, in Dr. Steph's profession or whatever profession or career field you're in, it's always a good idea to kind of see uh, everybody else's job that you work with and, you know, what's going on around you. I guess it gives you a better appreciation for things. And Yeah, I mean, it, you, the only thing I was going to add is that this happens in a lot of different fields where you have a lot of people working in co- close proximity to one another, but everyone's getting their own slightly uh, different training for their specific roles. Um, and while that's important, you need to know exactly what you're doing for the job that you you need to be doing. Um, you also need to realize what the folks that you're working with in those situations are going through and what they need to be doing as well. Um, and that can be pretty overwhelming. That's a lot of information to to take in and to know, but it's important still. 
It is, it is. Well, guess what? We just ended the last piece of feedback, and I'm looking at my timer, and I think that uh, Liz will concur that we're right about exactly at the three-hour point. And uh, that means that uh, the episode 403 is in the can. Well, it will be in a few days. The circular <laughs> can. Yeah, in the circular bin. Um, and uh, But before we go, uh, again, we'd like to uh, thank everyone for for downloading and and or listening watching the show uh, we have a youtube channel where and uh, we're also on facebook live now uh, the last several episodes have been there as well uh, so where you can watch us uh, record the show uh, live uh, not all of it makes it into the audio podcast most of it does but not everything and it's a lot of fun to uh, join us while we're recording the show live uh, because we have a very active and dedicated uh, uh, chat room uh, supporters of the show that show up uh, just about every time we record. It's a lot of fun, so you should check that out. And uh, one of the places you can go to uh, learn about that sort of thing is the website, AirlinePilotGuy.com. We have a special page just for the for the YouTube uh, videos. Uh, we also have pages for Plane Tales, uh, where Nick adds a lot of supporting uh, information and photographs and that kind of stuff that go along with his excellent Plain Tale podcast and um, merchandise and what else is there? Uh, the Coffee Fund, information about that and uh, information about the crew and the community, which is the best part of all of this. And uh, another way to get involved with the community is via the social meds. You can head over to twitter.com and look for us using the handle at APG crew. We would love to interact with you there. Also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, lots of the community is there as well. Uh, lots of good information regarding current events in the world of aviation. Also ways to um, interact with us more and meetups and stuff like that. Exactly. And we are also on Slack. We have an APG Slack, Slack team, <laughs> Slack team, uh, which is managed by Hillel. And uh, hang on, let's see if Hillel's ready to tell us about that. Hillel, can you get me a roll of toilet paper? Uh, not right now. Can you come over here and tell us about Slack, please? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, and uh, now you can go back to the... See ya. I wouldn't go in there for a while, Captain. Okay, thanks. Make sure you get him that roll of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? Have I forgotten anything? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Well, with that, until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Be safe out there.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline 